Today we venture to Hollywood to visit with our good friend, Leon Carroll. Leon served his country sufficiently. He began his service as a United States Marine until he would join a little agency known as NIS, the Naval Investigative Service. Leon would then have an outstanding career as a special agent. Rising to the level of senior management, he would retire after 20 years of service to NCIS. Leon was called back into service on 9-11 and would serve the agency until retiring again. Leon would then take a job as an advisor to a TV show that was just beginning that is now the most popular scripted drama in the world. Of course, I'm talking about the TV show NCIS. Leon has worked as an advisor on that show and has served the TV show more years than he did as an NCIS special agent. Leon has done about everything you can do with the TV show and tells many stories of what it's like to advise actors like Mark Harmon and the rest of the crew to be as realistic as possible and give a positive representation of our agency. Leon continues to advise, but interestingly enough, he has also written one episode of the TV show, season eight, episode 18, Out of the Frying Pan. Check it out. Also, you should know that the director on the TV show, Leon Vance, was named after Leon Carroll. So, enjoy this episode of NCIS Reports in the Field, Special Agent Leon Carroll. Leon, thanks for joining us today. I know you've got a long history. I mean, I, I couldn't believe the other day when you were, you were on the phone and you told me that you've literally got as many years with the TV show as you have with the organization. That 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 just astounded me. That's that's a credit to the great success of the TV show and the work you've been doing there. So that's good stuff. Well, thanks a lot, Lee. I appreciate that. And I thank you for offering me a job during that phone call. I, yeah. I didn't realize they had upped the uh, waiver age up to 72, which is Well, right we're now. happy. We would happy to have you back anytime you want to come back. Well, thanks, Lee. Anyway, yeah, I started, uh, my life started in 1950 in Chicago, Illinois, and I uh, grew up there, went to high school there, really never went any other place, never thought I'd ever leave Chicago, but I'd never been any other place. And first time I got a chance to go on a school trip to Colorado, I fell in love with the West, so I knew that I was going to depart there. But I went to a high school on the south side of Chicago and what's now called the West Inglewood side, but it serviced the whole entire south side for students that had done well in elementary school and wanted to pursue engineering in, in college or at university level. Graduated from there, played football uh, for all four years there. I uh, was a defensive back and a wide receiver at that time split in and um, was able to get a, a a look at playing football at the college level at North Dakota State University. My coach was familiar with the coach up there and got me a shot. Uh, before that, I had thought about not playing football anymore. Mm -hmm. And actually, I had been enrolled at Texas Tech University. Mm -hmm. But uh, my assistant principal called me in one day. And at that time, the schools down in that that area were not accepting African-American or Black people. So, sure. but I had got, I was one of those test cases. And he called me in and he says, hey, do you know how hot it gets in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> and that was his way of saying, maybe you ought to think about some other place. And he says, you have an opportunity to go up to North Dakota and, and continue playing ball. You know, yeah. that's something I would recommend. So I did. And it was one of the better decisions I'd ever made. Never mm -hmm. was a star or anything like that up there. But 
got to play with some guys that are really great players. We call ourselves the Big Ten Rejects because our team could be <laughs> probably half the teams in the Big Ten, but yeah. our players probably weren't academically suited for what the academic requirements were in the Big Ten at that time. So was North Dakota State at that time, was it as good a program as it is now? We won, while I was there, we won two national championships. I was wow. on championship number two and three. That is cool. We won the first one before I got there was in 65, and that was a game against Grambling, Grambling now Grambling State University. Mm-hmm. Had players like Shaq Harris and Charlie Joyner and all of those guys. Wow. Legends. But uh, so I, I went through the college career. I actually majored. I started off in architecture, but uh, which is kind of what I was trained for in high school to be an architectural draftsman. Mm-hmm. And but the, the math and science part at that time, now it's more of an art. Back then, it was more of an engineering type of thing. Mm-hmm. Math and science was a killer for me, especially trying to play football at the same time. So I switched majors to business and economics, and that's what I graduated with. And mm-hmm. my dad owned a, uh, several liquor stores on the south side of Chicago. So during the summers, I would go work for him. One summer, I worked first summer off. I actually worked for U.S. Steel and at the at the South Chicago Works. Mm-hmm. And that really convinced me to take my butt back to college because <laughs> that was an experience that uh, was was mind-boggling to say the least. So I went on back to school and ended up graduating in 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that period of time, I, I thought about the Marine Corps, which is an organization I wanted to join even out of high school. But my mom was smart enough to say, no, you have an opportunity to go to college. You do that and then you make a decision about it. And I'm so glad she told me that. Gave me that. Smart lady. Very yeah, smart. Lady. Right. So 72 graduated from there. I was commissioned pretty much right away, went on active duty. And I just recently found out that General Mattis was in my basic class. Is that right? And, uh, yeah, I didn't know him. He was, I think, in third platoon. And, you know, we do things alphabetically. So I was in the first with the last name, Carol. <laughs> But uh, I was going through some things and I saw where he was there at the same time. And I go, he had to have been, you know, in my class. And I went back and pulled up some pictures and lo and behold, there he is at like a mess night. No, it was actually a class picture, but it had it broken down in platoons. So I took a snippet of his Mm -hmm. and then mine. And I go, that's got to be the guy. And it turns out it was him. I haven't had any contact with him or anything like that, but... I had several guys who had made it pretty big in the, in the Marine Corps out of our basic class. Greg Newbold was another one. But anyway, uh, so I did that for six years, active duty. Mm-hmm. And I was on active duty uh, probably three years into my tour when an, when an NIS agent came and visited. I was a company executive officer, and he was looking for one of uh, my troops for some probably petty offense or whatever. And I had, I'll say I had forgotten about NIS, and I'll tell you this part of the story. He comes up, he shows me his credentials, uh-huh. and he says, uh, I'm here to see Lance Corporal so-and-so, and I'm sitting at my desk. I didn't even stand up, he's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I says, well, what is NIS, a cheap imitation of the FBI? And he, <laughs> I, I thought he was ready to jump across the desk, right? And I said, hey, hey, look, I'm, I'm just kidding, man. I'm just kidding, <laughs> And he smiled. He was, his name was Ray Hardy. He's no longer with us. 
Yeah. And he laughed and he goes, he goes, you know, we're looking for uh, other minority agents. He, he was a black agent. Uh -huh. And uh, he says, why don't you come down and visit the office? Uh -huh. And I go, okay, great. I, you know, I have an opportunity. Probably I can be getting out here pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and the, the office at Pendleton at that time was right next to the brig. It was awful. And, and <laughs> so it wasn't in that old building, the old World War II building. It was Oh no, no, that was like wow. an upgrade from this place, right? <laughs> so, but it was an old World War II building. I went in and I go, wow, you know, being a Marine, it doesn't take much to impress you, right? But I was <laughs> totally not impressed. And uh, I go, oh, okay. So anyway, I went back unimpressed. And it wasn't too much later than that, there had been a, a break-in of the armory at Edson Range mm -hmm. where all kinds of rifles were stolen. This is where the recruits go to, to qualify. And at the time I was the battalion communications officer. So we were out in the field doing some kind of you know training, uh, battalion level training. And I get home and my wife says, you know, the FBI was here yesterday morning. I go, really? Because I didn't know about this being out and being out in the field. She says, yeah, there was a, a break-in at one of the armies and, and, and the weapons were stolen and uh, the two guys that did it were black. You know, they were, they were dressed in uniform. One was dressed as an officer, one dressed as a staff NCO. And they just ordered a recruit back in those days. They just had the rifle racks and they put a chain and lock them. They ordered the recruit to unlock them and they just loaded them in a car and drove off. Well, these were the days of, you know, like the Symbionese Liberation Army and a lot of you know, sure. black groups that were, were protesting or mm -hmm. in some cases going beyond that. Mm -hmm. So I go, really? She goes, yeah. She says, it was the FBI. When I was leaving, they stopped me. She was leaving to go to work. They stopped me out in front of the house or apartment and said, hey, you know, we're with the FBI. This is what we're investigating. And we're looking for these rifles. and do you mind if we search your house? <laughs> and, and she was kind of hesitant. She's young at the time and we had nothing to hide really. And, and so she goes, well, I don't know. She goes, well, you know, we could just call in and get a warrant to do it anyway, right? The usual, you know. Yeah, right off the TV shows. And so she, she goes, sure, <laughs> we don't have anything to hide. Well, of course, when she tells me that, I'm livid, right? So I, I go back the next day and I tell the colonel, the battalion commander, what had happened. And he's livid now. Mm -hmm. And he gets on the phone and calls, I don't know who, but later I get a call from none other than J. Brian McKee. Oh, who wow. Was the, it was the sack at Camp Pendleton at that time. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, I want to apologize for what happened. He goes, I know who it was that went there, meaning, you know, he knew it was the FBI. He knew they had done that. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, the wrong thing, the wrong way for them to do. But I think at that time, there were so few black officers in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. What they did was got a list of all the, you know, probably 20 of us, or if that, in the whole division mm -hmm. and said, hey, we can hit these houses and just do a process of elimination. Turns yeah. out it wasn't a Marine or two Marines. There were two people that were out of South L.A., that knew how easy it was to pull this off and they did it and they did recoup, recoup those weapons. But uh, it was wow. it was like one of my, my first things about the whole process of what goes on with trying to get through a system that is not 
exactly fair, right? Yeah, sure. So it made me think a little bit more about NIS. I know when I was younger, I always thought about law enforcement, but to be honest, I was more military oriented. But that was an experience for me that said, maybe I could be uh, an agent of change, so to speak. Sure. NIS. So I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps. I applied for a position with NIS. And I remember uh, going to the regional office down in San Diego uh, for my board, screening board. And Kay Fogelberg, who was one of the admin folks there, she says to me, she says, you know, Mr. Carroll, we just hired a gentleman yesterday who was African-American had a law degree and uh, we're assigning, he's gonna be assigned to, to the Long Beach office. And I go, wow, okay. So I go in, do my board, I thought I did great. A month mm -hmm. later, I get the standard letter. You're not, you know, <laughs> have all these great applicants and you're not one of them basically. Yeah. I thought, oh man, that's, that's kind of a bum deal because I thought yeah. I aced it, right? Sure. So I went back to graduate school and I took up uh, sociology with a criminal justice bent to it. Mm -hmm. And along about the second year of getting ready to complete it, I thought, oh man, I, I need a job. <laughs> <laughs> so just on a fluke, I applied, you know, again, thinking back that mm -hmm. I didn't get hired because I didn't have enough education at that time. Right. And uh, so I was then a given a second shot at screening at Great Lakes because I was in the Midwest at that time at North Dakota and North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm sitting in the waiting room and guy walks by and he goes, hey, don't I know you? And I looked up and I go, yeah, it was uh, Mr. Johnson. I says, you were in charge of the office in San Diego when I screened. He goes, yeah, that's it. He goes, and we didn't hire you? And I go, no, sir. He goes, wait a minute. Okay, so I'm sitting there waiting. They bring me in and they ask me like three little basic questions and they go, <laughs> that's it, right? So within a couple of weeks, I get a phone call. Hey, would you like a job? <laughs> and and uh, I, says, I says, well, yeah, sure. You know, and I had put uh, Great Lakes because I didn't want to have to pay for the move as my first. Mm -hmm. And then I put in two California places, uh, San Diego and San Francisco. And where do I end up? Long Beach. But oh, they wow. wanted me to be here in like two weeks. And I go, I can't just <laughs> up and move in two weeks, right? <laughs> well, maybe we can give you some leeway. So they gave me like a month to get all my affairs together. And in September mm -hmm. 1980, mm -hmm. I reported for duty in the Long Beach office. Wow. So who was the sack in Long Beach when you first started? It was, it was Ron Salmon. Okay. Ron Salmon no longer with us as well. And Ron was a great guy. He was uh, also a former Marine and a Marine reservist. Actually, he retired from the reserves as a colonel. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up at that time, it was almost automatic. You were going to be hired as a GS-7, regardless of any sure. experience, education or whatever. And mm -hmm. I was, you know, at that time I was single because I had gotten a divorce and I show up and he says, hey, he says, I see you were, you know, you hadn't been out of the Marines that long. And there was a Marine Reserve unit right pretty much across the street from the office. He says, why don't you go over there and see if you can get a job? Because you're not going to be making much money here. <laughs> and at that time, we were getting paid, I think, with with uh, AUO, we were getting like $17,000 a year, right? Yeah, that's about right. 
And uh, so I went over and it just, as luck would have it, and I have to say my life has been full of fortune. The guy who was the assistant INI inspector instructor was a, another communications officer who I served with at first Marine division. He was a comm officer for first recon battalion. And I knew him quite well. And he said, hey, this is your lucky day. We've been looking for a comm officer. And so I got hired on third Anglo code and I did that for three years and uh, have had been associated with them ever since. So it's a, it's an interesting world. That's where my NIS world started. And I was there for five years before I got uh, brought back to headquarters. Long Beach was a busy office at the time. They had two battleships there, I think. It was... Well, we didn't have the ships there then. That was my okay. second tour when I came back, but it was it was a great training office and and here's what's interesting about that office mm -hmm. let me run down the people that actually made scs not not me but mark ridley obviously mm -hmm. rick warmack john wagner i could go on and name others that uh that made it you know pretty well in the organization a bunch of 15s sure. so there were it was a great office for people to learn and understand how to do basic investigations, who all moved up. I mean, there were a bunch of us that made 15, 14. Mm -hmm. So though, for the most part, people that started there did really well. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, so where'd you, so you finished Long Beach, your first tour, where do you go to next? Headquarters, I was in uh, what we call 22C then, but special projects. We provided CI support to the special access programs. Okay. We were the first group of doing that. Uh, we were five of us, five or six of us that were brought back there just to work with the different programs. And I did that for two years. I didn't like the headquarters atmosphere mm. and I was <laughs> on the road a lot actually. So that was good. But uh, Tom Fisher came to me and he says, Hey, we're looking for people to go afloat. And I go, I'd do almost anything to get out of here. <laughs> so I go, you know, I did two years as a Marine on a ship. I think I can survive one year on a carrier, right? Yeah. So he hooked me up. And, uh, and at that time, they had the incentive. It was so hard to get on, on the carriers or for them to get people to volunteer for carriers. They offered you temporary promotions if you were a 12 and permanent, you know, after you got off the ship. So I went and picked up a temp 13. And I mm -hmm. was out there with Mike Donnelly, who was the 12 sure. at the time. And uh, so- Is that, on, was, is that on Constellation or Ranger? Ranger. Ranger, okay. On the Ranger, but we, re, we relieved Constellation. Okay. And I was just talking to Alan Sype about that the other day. Des Whelan and Jim Lobstrom were on, on Connie and we replaced them. Mm -hmm. I told Al, I says, you know, Al, we we kind of were divorced from NIS for that period of time because sure. we never heard from our bosses. And nope. of course, then there was no, you know, internet and all of that stuff. So mm -hmm. I remember writing, sending a naval message over to Des saying, hey, do you ever hear from the RA? Do you ever hear from the boss or anything? And he <laughs> sent a really short response. And it was Leon you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like death. We on. that was so, a death. We answer right so, there. So I, <laughs> I, uh, 
I took that to heart and said, well, I can handle it on my own. I could do this. So anyway, we had a a successful uh, cruise and actually that'll be highlighted in the upcoming NCISA uh, uh, magazine. Oh, excellent. So can can I, can I go back to um, Long Beach? I just want to ask you one more question about Long Beach, your first tour. Right. What was probably the most significant case you had during that seven years while you were there? You know, well, the, the initial time was five years, and then I came back after headquarters and the, the carrier tour for two. Mm-hmm. I would say during that, we came in when the Norton Sound thing was going on. This was high publicity, and, and it was uh, pretty much an investigation that delved into homosexuality on a, on a ship. Okay. Now, I was following that. I came on as a trainee, and I saw all the agents and all the the legwork they put into doing something now we would never even investigate right sure but they had just started putting females on on ships and it, that particular ship was a tender so it only went out to sea once or twice a year and they had this big you know deal about this ring of lesbians doing different things on the ship Interesting. but that wasn't uh, i think the biggest thing the most important thing and i and i got an award for it was a CI support that we provided to the 1984 Olympics that were. Oh, that's interesting. And um, a lot of that I still can't talk about because uh, mm-hmm. we're going to do the Olympics here again and we don't want the Russians to know. I'm hopefully some of the techniques have changed, but uh, <laughs> we had a CI cell and we did a lot of, a lot of good work in support of that uh, with the FBI. And that was, that was something that I remember quite well from the criminal side, we had, you know, our death cases and, 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 and that type of thing. I did some of that, but narcotics was probably the biggest thing that we were doing there. And I did it undercover here is a shallow undercover. It's a good story. I was on uh, maybe three years. I, I don't know if you remember Susan Volpe. Do you remember her? Know the name. I ne- never she, met her. She didn't stay long with us, but she had just started. We, the first female agent, that we had in in the RA lasted six months. She came in from North Carolina and she was engaged to a dentist back there. Mm -hmm. She was here for only like uh, six months at the most. She went home for leave on Thanksgiving and never came back. Mm -hmm. And so they hired uh, the next female that came in was Susan Volpe and they didn't want to lose her, right? So they, you know, did a lot of things that were a little different, but one of the things that, happened was we had a source actually it was a source of another agent i want to say uh, i can't remember exactly who it was now but but they needed someone to go with this source to make a buy mm-hmm. and this was my first time actually seeing freebasing being done and, and that kind of thing so anyway it was either between me and sue going in with this this source at this place that was frequented by a lot of uh, shipyard workers, naval shipyard workers. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's looking at me, looking at her, he goes, I think he's the guy that should go in with me. And it was because pretty much everybody in there was black, but the source was Hispanic, right? Yeah. So anyway, I go home and I get my big apple hat on and get dressed like, you know, I belong. Yeah. But here's the deal. We've done a lot of those shipyard cases. So I'm like, I walk in there and I'm like, man, I hope none of these people recognize me, right? Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So we're sitting there, we're supposed to buy, I think, uh, a pound of weed or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and I had to go pee. We're sitting there for a long time, right? So I had to go pee and I get up and I go in the bathroom and they're freebasing in the bathroom, like, you know, oh there and everything else. Now, what do you want? And I go, hey man, I just, I gotta take a leak. I'm sorry, I, I gotta. And, and they let me come in and do it. <laughs> I was shocked. When a man's gotta go, a man's gotta yeah, go. Yeah, it's gotta go. And they, and they respected that, right? So that was pretty <laughs> But uh, anyway, we, we did the buy and we had all kinds of people outside. And I mean, and I'm like, I got the old pen, you know, you pull it, there's a distress thing. I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'll survive that if I do that here. <laughs> but we were able to get out. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. our source ended up getting killed in a robbery. Oh, no. And uh, so that case never went to court. But, oh, uh, my God. Did you guys wear wires back in those days? Did they have a, have, have yes. a wire? Probably the same they equipment were, we had in 89. You know what? The same kind of wire that our actors wear today on, on stage. And I think uh -huh. about that and I'm like, you know, they're, you know, like pager size, right? And, the sure. antenna and all of that. And uh, now I'm sure they, you know, they do it with little, small little things and cameras and everything. <laughs> we didn't have the cameras and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. And that was mm -hmm. normally you, you kind of stayed, tried to stay away from like wiring your sources, but there was a point in time where you had to, and actually this one we, we did, but you know, he had established his bona fides, so they weren't like leery of him. I mean, he had made bison the reason why he was the snitching because he got busted, right? Yeah. So, so that wasn't a big issue at that one, but I, I was worried about that for, you know, our agents because if they went in totally undercover, if you were deep undercover, you probably didn't wear one until you absolutely needed to. But yeah, sure. they wore those things. You know, yeah, it's amazing. Kel units or something like that. Yeah, a Kel kits or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, those those wires, uh, we used to say that they work really great in the office, but not so much out in the field. <laughs> no, and that was the other thing. Uh, story, another drug story was later on when I went back for my second tour, I was the FCI ASAC. And that's when Mark Ridley, Dwight Clayton, John Wagner, those guys were working for Charlie Moss and they were doing a lot of drugs. And I mean, they were actually doing raids and stuff. Sure. And uh, Dave Swindle was the sack. And Dave's a great guy, but mm -hmm. he gets hyper. I mean, and, <laughs> and we were doing a, a bust. Uh, a Ridley was the undercover and it was at a, a crack house in Long Beach. Uh -huh. And he had been in Dunbys and, but I think the guy, the bad guys have suspected him. We, he, he was wired, right? So that day we were out there and Dave was out there with us. And I'm with Dave, right? He and I are partnering. Mm -hmm. And he could hear what was going on. And he was like, Leon, we got to go in there and save him. Because they were like challenging. I said, no, no, Dave. Mark's doing a good job. He's handling yeah. it. I don't think there's going to be any problem. Just, just hang tight. And, yeah. and he did, right? Yeah. But the next day when we did the bus with Long Beach PD, they destroyed this building. I mean, they brought the battering ram thing out there. <laughs> I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe it was a little bit more dangerous than I thought. But anyway. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Dave Swinter was a guy that hired me from Memphis. And, uh, uh, I, you know, he played a trick on me during my screen board. Yeah. Um, yeah, he would ask questions like this because he was an Alabama guy and I was an Alabama guy. So he goes. He goes, uh, so he goes, uh, how's Alabama's base? Cause he was a baseball player. How's, how, how's Alabama's baseball player, uh, baseball team going to do next year? And what's the range of a silkworm missile? 
I mean, that's the kind of best way to ask questions. Like these multiple questions. Yeah. And, yeah. and I go, you know, I only owned one suit at the time. And I think I was sweating, you know, four hours of, you know, questions like that. And I was sweating yeah. the whole time. And James Reed was in the office and James was, you know, two hours, they're taking my fingerprints. And I'm like going, Mr. Reed, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this job. Uh, he goes, he goes, you don't, you don't need to worry. Dave likes you. You're going to get hired. So yeah. it, it relaxed after that. But Mr. Swindle could be ultra. I mean, he was, could be intimidating back in the yeah. day. Yeah, no, he was that, uh, you know, and kudos to James. He's being recognized at Ole Miss. Though. He is. He is. In fact, I'm interviewing James next week. Oh, great. great. Yeah. He's I'm looking guy, forward to that. Real soft spoken guy, but really a good guy. What? Uh, another swindle story. Uh, so <laughs> you're talking about Long Beach cases. So here's one that Pete Chavez dreamed up, and I'm surprised that Pete even came up with it. But we were, they were stealing those big gallon cans of beans out of the mess hall, right? And so, <laughs> and so this woman who was pissed at her husband, uh -huh. uh, who was the guy, the, the sailor, right? They lived in housing. And she called it up and Pete went over there and go, yeah, God, we got cases of these beans, right? They're just selling out there on the open market, whatever. So he set up a deal for us to buy some beans. <laughs> and it, was, it was in a park along the beach down, at, down here in Long Beach in the marina. Mm -hmm. And we had a bunch of guys out there and Dave was one of them. So Dave and I, again, partnering up, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So we're in this... Uh, in one of the restrooms in the beach, you know, like people walk in and out and was in the men's room. And mm -hmm. So we're just kind of hanging out, right? <laughs> so this guy walks in and he looks at us and you know what he's thinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> Dave is like, hey, Leon, do you think he thinks we're like, you know? And I go, he walked right out, didn't he? <laughs> so, so anyway, the buy goes down mm -hmm. and I'm laughing because, you know, Pete at that time was working for me in FCI. We, this is kind of an all hands in the office out there thing. He takes the guy down in the middle of the street, cuffs him and all of that stuff. And, you know, we take him off. And I go, God, we did all of this over some stolen beans. I can't believe it. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, no, Dave, Dave's a great guy. I talked to him not too long ago and he's, loving his time back down in Alabama. So yeah, he's uh, one of the greatest guys I've ever been able to, I never got to work for him, but I, you know, I, I worked around him and he just an impressive guy. Lee, you would love working for him. And I can, I can tell this story too. Um, I, and I, but I won't mention names. And I had an individual who worked for me. who was a little different mm -hmm. and he wrote me up because he claimed that I called him Joe shit, the rag man. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and that, and I said to Dave, I says, he, and he shows me the letter. He says, did you call him Joe shit, the rag man? I said, no, Dave. I just said, he looked like Joe shit, the rag man. When he came to work. And Dave took the, took the, the uh, memo, the complaint, balled it up, threw it in the circular file. So that was, yeah, so I had a lot of respect for that guy just for like not making a big deal out of nothing, right? Yeah, he's a good man. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So so going back, so now we're back on the uh, the Ranger and uh, working with Mike Donnelly. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those anybody that's done a, a, a stint on an aircraft carrier or one, now these days, the LHAs and LHDs um, on staff um, knows that there can be really weird cases can break it sometimes. You guys ever have any things like arsons or anything that uh, happen on the, board the ship? We didn't have. I don't recall an arson, but there are two cases that stick out in, in mind while we were out there. We had actually, when we hit ports, we had mm-hmm. great cases. We had two death cases out there. One of them was a sailor who was killed by Thai police. We were out on Yankee Station for 90 straight days. This was when we were escorting the tankers through the Gulf. Sure. And so we didn't have, we even skipped, and this was a mistake I think the skipper made. We had just exceeded the 90 days for a steel beach picnic. He says, well, we're going to pull in on the 91st day, so we're not going to do it. Mm. Big mistake. Oh, boy. What happened was we pull in to Pattaya Beach, Thailand, and these sailors went crazy. Oh, boy. And basically tore up the town. But uh, the, the guy who was, we called him Lord Mayor, who was in charge of the, the politician, he didn't care as long as, you know, we were paying for damages and sailors were buying things, right? Mm-hmm. We had one sailor who actually had been taken out of the brig when we started the deployment. And this was his first day on the beach in four months. First thing sailors do when they hit the beach, one is they want to drink and two mm-hmm. is find a woman, right? Sure. He, did, he was successful in doing both, except for when he went with this woman, he went to a remote location and got into an altercation with, I don't know if it was a pimp boyfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the kid was scared left went running and found a place that was kind of like what we would call a strip mall but it was a place that had businesses underneath and the you know people that owned them or ran them lived up above he gets there and he's trying to get help because you know he's being chased by this guy by this time he had you know cut himself on you know how they do the broken bottles on top of the fences and stuff like that well he had jumped out to escape and cut himself and all of that so he's bleeding so he gets to this place, and this is in the evening, and the people who are there see him, and it scares them because here's a foreigner, you know, trying to basically get help. They look at him as trying to break in. Mm-hmm. Just so happens there was a police traffic box, and there, you know, when you're on duty, they have two traffic cops there, and one sleeps while the other one's out there dealing with traffic. The kid runs over to get help, but they don't understand him. The, the guy who's out on duty doesn't understand it, but he sees that he's bleeding and all of that. So he says, let me go in and get my, with my partner up. He understands more English than I do. And, and he's not able to, this is what he's saying, but this is not what's being comprehended by this kid. So he turns to go in and I don't know what he thought, but the kid grabbed his pistol, his revolver and turned and held it on him. The other partner wakes up and runs out and sees what's happening and pulls his revolver. So now they're shooting, right? The kid gets hit and he runs off again. Mm. So the Thai police story is they couldn't find him because he was out in the jungle. Bottom line is, had they found him, he would have probably lived, but he bled out and he died. So this became a big front page story, even in Bangkok, right? 
mm-hmm. and it became an international thing. I'm dealing with the the admiral, the embassy. I mean, I ended up having to stay back when the carrier left just to go through like autopsy and all of that stuff. And it turns out the kid was from Torrance, California, right here. Mm-hmm. And when I got back off the deployment and was reassigned up here, contacted the parents because <clears throat> they were having some type of legal proceeding here about this whole event. And I volunteered to offer to, you know, tell them, you know, what I knew because I was the investigator, I was a case agent on this thing, what happened. Sure. They didn't want to do that. And I, I don't, I'm sure they got plenty of money from the Navy for what one reason or another for losing yeah. their son, but you don't bring the son back. But it was a great experience for me to, to see how in an international situation, mm-hmm. all the powers to be play in on this thing. And especially right. one that's noteworthy, you know, that gets the media attention that that one got. The other one was on the ship itself. We had a whole division of guys who were, they had taken a, a, a compartment down at the bottom of the ship and this was their dope den, right? They would smoke in there. So we had an informant that said, hey, this is what's going on down there. And there was only one way in and one way out down a straight up and down ladder. This is how far down in the carrier this was. Wow. And we had enough information to go down and make make a bust on them and these guys never knew what was going on at that time actually i was by myself i think mike mike was off on a advance actually so i had the two command investigators and a bunch of security people and one of our command investigators was sergeant hurt i'll never forget him he was like sergeant rock big guy right and i said hey hurt you're going to be the first one down this hole, right? He barely fit through this. But he was down there. And the look on these guys' faces was like incredible. And uh, <laughs> so we, we busted them. And it turns out there was a whole division. And the division, the officer in charge of the division says, yeah, he goes, what am I going to do? These were the repair guys, right? The HTs and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I says, I don't know, but, you know, I'm sure the captain wants them all off the ship. He doesn't want a bunch of guys that are high all the time, you know, working. And they had it outfitted. Like, I don't know if you've probably seen doing busting, how you go into like a dope den, you know, all mm-hmm. the paraphernalia hanging up. Is and that all. right? And that's how they had this place set up. Wow. But anyway, um, that was one of the cases. Uh, another one was a great one. Uh, pulling into the Philippines the first time we had gotten word that, we had some sailors that were bringing in weapons parts to be resold. What they would do is legally buy parts to nine millimeters, 45s, whatever. Mm-hmm. They strip them all down as separate pieces. And then when we got to the Philippines, they have we reassemble them and sell them, right? So we got mm-hmm. word on that. And this was a case that ended up being worked later on more out of the Philippines. But I remember we were pulling in and I was trying to get a command authorized search and and I'm on the bridge as we're coming in and I said to the captain I says captain I know this is a bad time but you know if we pull in and we moor these guys get off there's going to be a lot of guns that are going to be going flooding into the Philippines and belonging to the city mm-hmm. turns to me and he goes Leon this is a bad time but this is a big deal and he mm-hmm. he signed off on it and we were able to bust these guys before they got off the ship so those are some of the cases that we did. I think in the middle part of the, the cruise, when 
everybody's working operationally, you don't have as much stuff to do, but on either right. end transiting and coming back, you know, I don't know how one agent does it now. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's what they've gone back to is just one agent on the carrier, but yeah. you know, Mike and I were great as a team. I mean, he was more of a prem guy and I was an FCI guy and we had some yeah. FCI and I was put out there as an experiment to do CI stuff. And we, we did have a DA op that we had put together. Yeah. It didn't come turn off say as successful as we wanted, but did you guys run any uh, ops in the Philippines, uh, narcotics? Always ops? did drug suppression ops when they came in, but that was more the office. I mean, we would use the sailors, obviously, as, as sources, sure. CWs, but uh, yeah, we, we did those all the time. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that, you know, when I was on board the ship, I was a single agent and I relied heavily on the command investigators. Right. I mean, you, you had to because, you know, I think I late we pulled out on the Kitty Hawk and had about 52 cases from the previous agent. Mm -hmm. And we had an arson problem. We had all kinds of issues. And if it wouldn't have been for MA1 Scott Rubin, I don't think I'd have gotten through that tour. Yeah. No, they're valuable. We had two sailors and a Marine. And, you know, and, and what I liked is we had two things that worked well for me is the guy who was the JAG, Lee JAG, had been a JAG officer here in Long Beach. And I had actually purchased his wife's car just before <laughs> I went to, to, to uh, Panama. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was great. I mean, we had a great relationship. He and I would do Liberty and stuff together. And, you know, we actually knew, you know, what each other were thinking. And the security officer who was a, you know, a Mustang, but he was uh, an ensign but he had been yeah. in for like 15 years or whatever yeah. and he says hey leon he goes i'm going to give you the command investigators they're yours they'll do whatever you tell them to do and that's exactly <laughs> what happened and uh you know it was great to have that support and then we had a great exo on the ship the captain you know was a little distant but he was uh and i and i and i think he had had a problem with nis Mm -hmm. well, he had been a CEO of a smaller amphib before he got the carrier thing. And uh, I think he had had issues because the XO would always tell us, you know, he's not real keen on NIS, right? So, mm -hmm. but the XO would take care of us. I mean, he, that guy was great. And uh, he, I think he was a wannabe agent, to be honest with you. <laughs> he was like, hey, you guys going to go shoot? Can I go out there and shoot with you guys? Like, sure, sure, XO, let's go. <laughs> so that was a good that was one of my my second best tour i mean most memorable and, and most enjoyable and my ranger was known was, to be a good ship i mean it was it had a good reputation yeah yeah they had just they had gone through some issues with their brig like two or three years before mm -hmm. and they brought in a skipper in fact our admiral uh had been the captain of the ship like two captains before that so you know, we, we had a great relationship with them and they, they had had their problems and they had cleaned them up by the time we got there. So mm -hmm. it was a very clean ship, uh, run very well, very efficiently. And, you know, you're always going to have knuckleheads like I've talked about already that you, know, sure. you have to deal with. But mm -hmm. for, for an agent afloat, we relieved uh, Ron Bolden was the agent on there before us, but he didn't deploy Mm -hmm. And uh, and actually, just before the deployment, I wasn't involved in the case because I hadn't gone there. But Ron was still there, and Mike was there, and they had a, had an issue that uh, almost uh, caused them not to deploy on time. So it was a six U, and on you know uh, 
the destruction of, I think, one of the freight elevators or something. Sure. And Ron and, and, and uh, Mike solved that case before I even showed up there. But that happened like within two weeks of us departing. Yeah. It seems like you always had something like that happen just before we were having arsons. They were trying to stop the ship from deploying. Yeah, yeah. And we, <laughs> they didn't do the arson wasn't as bad as they, they, they needed right, it. Right, right, right. But, you know, so you keep mentioning Panama. Did you go to Panama after the ship? I went to Panama after my second tour when I was here as the ASAC for mm -hmm. uh, FCI. I had the opportunity. I had always wanted to go. Actually, my guarantee off the ship was Rota, Spain. I was supposed okay. to go there as a GS-12 ASAC. Okay. But I got promoted while I was to permanent 13 while I was on the carrier. I didn't actually pick it up until I came up here to be the FCI ASAC. Mm -hmm. But what had happened was um, in 91 is when the Gulf War thing started. Sure. And uh, so they were looking for someone to go down there because uh, now I'm starting to lose a name. Uh, Chuck Bryant had been mm -hmm. my predecessor in Panama mm -hmm. and he was unaccompanied because he was down there during Just Cause. Okay. So after the Noriega thing and all of that, they didn't allow the agents to bring their families down there. Mm -hmm. And he was married and I, I thought he wanted to be back at home, but he volunteered to go to the war. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was to immediately get him back. I, I, I don't understand. I don't know what his, you know, why he made that decision, but they were left kind of holding the bag. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll go. Mm -hmm. And uh, So again, a short notice move to Panama. And I enjoyed it. I mean, the work down there was fantastic. Most sure. counter narcotics, but a lot of FCI work as well. Oh wow! So, so I was—that's what I was going to ask you. You were there during Just Cause, so you were after it was after Just Cause, and Noriega was gone, right? He was gone. Uh, here, here's what's interesting: that happened in December of of ninety, I think it was, because I was there. I got there in March of. February and March of 91. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> he was gone. They had the whole whole thing with not being able to find him for a while, right? Sure. But it was still like the Wild Wild West. I mean, our office still had bullet holes in it. The Sachs office <laughs> actually had bullet holes in it when I got oh, down wow. there. And I'll never forget it. When I went down, I talked to Chuck and you know, he was already gone by the time I got there, but he gave, he and I had worked together at headquarters. And so we were really good friends because, you know, he and his wife, Joanne, would have me over all the time because I, mm -hmm. back at the time I was at headquarters, I wasn't married. So they would have me over at their house all the time. So he called, he told me hey, what to expect and all of that. He says, hey, you know, I set it up for, you know, guys to pick you up at the airport when you come in and, you know, they'll take good care of you and all of that. But he was, he was out of there. Right. Yeah. So show up at the airport at Tacuman and uh, <clears throat> the two agents, uh, Kurt Fabicio and then uh, uh, Browning, Tom Browning picked me up. We get in the vehicle and they're reaching under and they're getting their Uzis out. I'm like, Holy shit. <laughs> what, what did I get myself into? Right. <laughs> We're driving from the airport. And they're telling me all of these stories and I'm like, holy Toledo. So what was happening was they were stopping people from the airport coming into town, robbing them and doing whatever, right? So mm -hmm. I'm like, oh man, this is crazy. So 
I was staying at the queue. And at that time we had to have roommates. And, and one, of the, one of the roommates I had early on before they found me permanent quarters was uh, a Navy SEAL who got robbed on the way from the airport to the queue. He shows up and he's pissed, right? I, and you know how macho these guys can be, right? Yeah. yeah. And he was like, I wish I had my guy, I would have shot those guys. I go, what happened? He goes, they robbed, they stopped the cab I was in and they robbed us, took all my stuff. And I was like, oh man. So it was true. I mean, it was like the wild, wild west for wow. two years I was down there. It got better toward the end, but the work was awesome. I mean, you know, at that time this was working, you know, joints and you know just sure. like maybe a pound was a big deal we sure. were having cocaine wash up on the beach at the naval station and bundles right oh, and uh yeah. we were able to work a lot with uh, our sister agencies and and that on not only the intel side but on the counter side i mean we were yeah. watching big loads of dope coming in that's being mm-hmm. transported up and, and it, it was just an awesome experience how big was the office at the time you were we there? We only had uh, five agents, but believe it or not, only one billet was for Krem initially. Mm-hmm. Everybody was CI. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I changed that. I, I, I got them to up, and I think when I left, it was at least 10. And we brought in more Krem agents. And because mm-hmm. uh, and the crimes there between Navy and Marines, you know, the Navy was a little guy. The Army and the Air Force had much more. Uh, you know, to, to defend or to, to work. And uh, we worked a lot with, especially with Air Force OSI. Yeah. Uh, the guy who was down there with me at the same time was Dana Simmons, who ended up being the director of OSI. Sure. At some point. Yeah. And uh, just a great guy. Another guy had always had me over uh, for dinner because he had his family was down there. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was, it was quite the experience all around were, were you guys living in the canal zone? It was, or did the canal zone still exist at that time? It had been turned over. Uh, that was right after Jimmy Carter. Well, it, it, I think by the 90s, maybe two years or something like that, but it had been turned over to the Panamanians. But yes, we still lived in what would have been the old canal zone, but it was now run by the Panamanians. Yeah. And on the other side of the canal was NAF Station, Panama Canal. We were at Fort Amador. Mm. which uh, was an art, had been an army base. And uh, mm-hmm. that's where the housing was for senior people, like the, the guy who was in, the Navy person who was in charge of that. Uh, Admiral Janekow was there during the, the takeover. Mm-hmm. And he had been one of the COs of one of the battleships when they brought him in. His son was my ASAC. And so it was kind of an interesting situation. He had just left you know, picking up his star and all of that. And the senior mm-hmm. Navy person there was, was a Navy captain at the time, but he was, he was pretty good. He had been the chief of staff and the Navy was trying to filter more people out of there. So they didn't keep continue it at the same level it was. So Nav South was kind of, you know, a low person on the totem pole, but Southcom at that time was in Panama. So yeah. we had general, the army general was in charge of it all. Did you ever have any conflicts with the with the army um, in any way? Not, I wouldn't say conflict, but it was they were hard to work with uh, sure. because they were soldiers first, 
-hmm. and then investigators. And the head of their, their CID office was, you know, had to report to the provost marshal and technically was an army warrant officer. Mm -hmm. And it was, and they had, but they had the numbers. They had mm -hmm. like 25, 30 agents or something like that. So they had more of the cases. We put together the Panama Jack Task Force, and that was a combination of, you know, Air Force, OSI, and CID, mm -hmm. and, 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 and NCIS at that. And we just transitioned to NCIS at the time. Sure. And um, Steve Green was one of the guys that was on Smart guy. Yep. Yep. Steve. Yep. Um, DJ Heights DJ. was involved. And uh, one of the first, actually the first case that we did jointly on, and our, and our mission was this smuggling by military people via military conveyances, either plane, ship, whatever, of drugs or anything. It didn't have, we had, you know, artifacts and all kinds of stuff that these guys were trying to put on, on planes and ship them up. So that was, that was really the mission of the Panama Jack Task Force. But one of the first cases, I just told this story not too long ago, was one that actually the Army CID, along with, um, they were using Dave Cannon. I don't know if you remember Dave. I remember Dave. So Dave worked for me here in, in, uh, in Los Angeles and in Panama. He was a fluent Spanish speaker. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived, they had already set this up. This was DJ Heinz's case, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, we needed someone to act as like a relative of the, the smuggler, right? The <laughs> buyer. So we picked Dave first thing right out of the box, mainly. And I speak pretty good Spanish. And I, I could tell his Spanish was very good. Yeah. But it was gringo Spanish, right? So <laughs> I get it. So, yeah. I, I, so I asked, I asked Dave, I says, hey, Dave, wh where did you learn it? Dave's a Mormon. I says, where did you learn to speak Spanish so like perfectly? And he also spoke Romanian as well. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, oh, on my mission. And I go, well, where did you do your mission? He goes, Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, so I said, OK, well, that works. <laughs> so anyway, we're getting doing the op plan for you know how the buy was going to go down, mm -hmm. and um, so we were meeting. And actually, my my quarters instead of like in an official NCIS place. So Dave was in my head practicing what he's going to say, uh -huh. and I'm I'm listening. And we're out. You know, like I don't know. I says Dave. I says Dave. You don't have to do this. I says you know, I can tell you're really, really nervous and, and that's good. I mean, I don't want you to be, you know, like you can, this is a piece of cake because it's not, we're dealing with Colombians, right? Mm -hmm. So so he goes, no, no, no. He goes, after I throw up, I'll be okay. And I was like, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So anyway, we went through it, but the Army CID part guy, he was like, they were supposed to come up with the money. Mm -hmm. And this was like $80,000 we're talking, right? Oh, wow. And so he goes, oh, I can't, I can't get that much money. He goes, why don't we do this? I'll go to take money out of my account, my personal account, and we'll put 20s on top of $1 stacks, and we'll use that as the show money. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're, we're not doing that. I says, don't you think they're going to pick up like one and go, like, go through and see like, that's, 
I says, no, I go, look, let me see if the Navy can come up with this. So I went over and talked to the CO, who was pretty good, although he was kind of not the best, but, but he was good with me and this. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Captain, I says, we're in a bind here. We had this deal going down on, and the deal was going to go down on the Air Force golf course, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so he says, uh, he goes, Leon, he goes, that's a lot of money. He goes, but you sure it's going to be okay? I go, we're just going to use it for show. We're not giving it to anybody or anything else, but we want to show that our guy is legit. So he goes, okay. So I go down to the Navy dispersing officer mm-hmm. with, you know, the orders from the captain to give us this much cash. And he goes, Leon, we don't have that much cash. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. He goes, wait a minute. Let me check with the Army. <laughs> <laughs> so he calls the army finance guy uh-huh. he says they got it he says let me give you this whatever it was paperwork and you can go over there so here's what happens i'm going through the most dangerous parts of town right to pick this up yeah and it didn't dawn on me until i'm like in Torrio, and i'm like this is where, where roberto duran escaped from right so i'm like <laughs> This is dangerous stuff, but I got my little five shot right thing at that time. That was enough. But anyway, I go over to the army, army post and uh, pick up the money. And the guy was pretty cool. It's like, oh, $80,000, like no big deal. Like, I'm sure he had millions in his, in his ball, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. So he gives me the cash and I'm driving back with 80,000 bucks in cash. And I get there and I thought DJ Heinz was going to just kiss me right on the spot. Oh, Leon, this is great. So anyway, they set up the deal and uh, we go over and I'm listening on the radio. And Jim McCrone is, uh, I don't know if you remember Jim, but he was one of the prim assets there. He was supposed to be at a choke point. Anyway, the guy shows up. He's going to bring, he brings a kilo for show. And we have agents and Panama. We had like 40 or 50 people around in the golf course, right? Mm-hmm. Steve Green is out there on the putting green. And mm-hmm. The golf pro is giving lessons, right? And Steve's like putting, and all of a sudden, his weapon falls out on the on the green, right? Oh no! <laughs> so, oh, no. so the the guy who's who's doing the the instruction goes, looks at him, he goes, "Oh, don't worry about that. We see those out here all the time." <laughs> you know, make a long story short, oh, we. Do the bus. We get the one guy who's supposed to be doing the sh- the, the deal, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but the bad guys who were laid off with you know the rest of the dope. For some reason, they get be- beyond Mulcrone and his guys, so they get away. So we only have one guy, and I don't know, I don't recall whether or not the guy we got, you know, dimed out these other guys. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking he probably took the rap because these were some dangerous people we're dealing with right? right so panama was just like you know cops and robbers for sure i mean we sound sounds actually pretty fun like you guys it was, have- it was a lot of fun but it was it was also there were some dangerous moments because sure. i remember even cannon getting robbed i mean he was meeting a source on a on a federal holiday right mm-hmm. and uh they were in a uh I think it was a restaurant meeting and the restaurant gets robbed. Right. Mm -hmm. And Davis got his weapon and all of that. And, and he says, yeah, they had us laid out and everything. And he was wearing an ankle holster. 
He says, I know the guys saw that I had a weapon, but you know, that was no big deal down there. Probably mm-hmm. everybody's attacking, right? He says, but he saw my badge too. He saw it. And he goes, you know, when they left, he goes, I got up and he goes, I went and saw like one of the PNP, one of the cops is standing outside. Cause at that time they had taken the national guard and turned them into cops, right? Sure. They just cut the head off of this thing that we had been fighting for, you know, what, like three or four months. And they took the soldiers and said, you're not a soldier now, you're a cop, right? So he runs out and he says, hey, those guys, they just robbed us. And you know, the, the cop took his M16 and he starts shooting at him. And Dave's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't shoot at him. So when he came in and he, he was like, man, you, you won't believe what happened. He goes, I just got robbed. And he told me that story. And of course, we had to report it up the chain. And I says, oh, man, he says, I, he says, I says, well, what, how did you feel? He goes, I can't believe I was like trying to save these guys and it just robbed me. <laughs> I was just like oh, shooting at them as they're running oh, away. I'm like, yeah, oh, well, God. this is what we go through. But yeah, it was it was quite, quite the quite the place to have good sea stories for sure. Well, maybe maybe you can confirm a story I heard from Panama about Bobby Hyatt. I don't know if okay. you know. Yeah. Uh, so Bobby is down there and he goes out doing a CI meet or something and he ends up meeting a chieftain in this uh, tribe that's down there and he en- ends up getting taken hostage by the tribe for a little bit and they had to escape. Do, do you know that story? No, but I know I know Bobby was Bobby came after he was he came as I was leaving. Uh-huh. And that must have happened after I left when uh, uh God uh, God, there's a bunch of guys. I called them the dream team, and the guys I was with was pissed because uh, when Wagner was down there, then he could verify whether or not it happened or yeah. not. But this is the first I've heard of that story. <laughs> yeah, Mark, told Mark Fox was the, the guy who replaced me, mm-hmm. and he was more buttoned down than I than I was. But yeah. I think Bobby was his ASAC. Yeah. And uh, but you know what? It probably did happen. I'm, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, there were some. Yeah, it's one of the. It is one of the most incredible and funny stories I've ever heard in my life. And I, and I know Wagner when he got down there. He he one time called Code Twenty Three and uh, about some um, you know money that the show money that they had lost. It was a joke, and they were calling one of the Twenty Three desk officers. Mm-hmm. And of course, it went right up to Mister Nedro. <laughs> of course, yeah. and Mister Nedro was like one. I know this is a joke. This is this is not anything. Of course, Wags is like, oh, I uh, probably should have made that call. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was responsible for for Wags getting down there. I, I needed somebody like him, although he he was gone. I left there and I went up to the region, mm-hmm. but I knew he had done some great stuff here in LA with drugs, and they needed people who had you know done that. Mm-hmm. And so I recommended that he go down to Panama. I knew at that time he was married to uh, uh, Connie and she's Cuban and she spoke Spanish. And I knew he was pretty good at Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so I, I needed somebody that, that really spoke the language to, to be able to operate in that environment. Sure. So he got down there and, and did what he did. But he he was working. I was only watching what he was doing from the region. At that time, we had regions and I was a sure the uh, FCI staff assistant from up there. And then when they did, when Nedro did away with regions, I went over to the field office and was the mm-hmm. FCI ASAC there. But uh, yeah, those guys did 
Good, some interesting and good work. You guys did some great work down there. Oh, yeah. And we had, uh, and what I liked was, you know, we had all of South America. So I got to go to Uruguay and, you know, oh, places nice. like that as well. So it was, it was awesome. That's that. What an awesome tour. So, so you go to the region, uh, the, uh, the 11 region or the San Diego? No, I was at the whole five, which was the North. Okay. Region. I went from, from Panama the to there. Mm-hmm. And then they did away with regions and the field office absorbed this. Uh, Jerry Nance was my first SEC over there. And then um, Wayne Bailey was, was the guy. <laughs> the legendary Wayne Bailey. Wayne Beetle Bailey. <laughs> when, when we were at the region one day, he was the, uh, the DRDO, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I worked for him. And, and I walked in one day and we were talking. And uh, I, I just kind of one of those things. I go, yeah, Holmes, this is the way it was. And he goes, did you just call me Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's I great. Go, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's funny. But, but I worked for him there and also down at the field office. And he, you know, I was fortunate to have pretty much every boss I had was great. And I learned so much from each one of them. He was one that I learned the importance of doing liaison. With. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he would take me, you know, when he would have the different meetings away from the agency and stuff, departments, mm-hmm. you know, wherever. And I, and I learned that from him that it's good to make that, those uh, <clears throat> acquaintances and, and even relationships have them, you know, stand out for a long time. So he was mm-hmm. a great guy to work with. Uh, I had Ron Pizanza worked for me there is uh, one of the SSAs and, and that. So, mm-hmm. you know, he handled the afloat because they, for whatever reason, wanted to put all the carriers under the FCIA sack. And I never really understood that, but sure. that's what they did in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the fact that I had been on a carrier, you know, I knew how to take care of those guys and eventually gals on those carriers. So, yeah, sure. A good, good tour at Norfolk. Every one of my places was great, you know. Yeah complain so you know it's it's you, you go from this part of your career where you're doing a lot of operational stuff and then you get into the management what would you what would you say was your your most um pleasing experience as a manager um as a leader in the organization i would say being able to you know work and, and guide and mentor people um mm-hmm. you know i had been an officer in the marine corps and that's kind of what officers should be doing and I found that to be the case. And I was, most of my career, I was a manager with NCIS, NIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got into management after my eighth year mm-hmm. uh, on the job. And, you know, I, I thought that was the best. I won't say it was always fun. The higher up you got, less fun it became, by the way. Yeah, but yeah, sure. uh, I, I thought, especially first level supervising and, that was great. Uh, even as a GS-14, that was great. And I enjoyed my time as a SAC at the, at the field office in the Northwest as well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you have to make hard decisions. But, but I always told the guys, especially when I got up to the Northwest, I said, you know, half of you guys are going to love a decision I make and the other half are going to hate it. Yeah. And I go, if that's the case, then I've made the right decision. So, you know, look at it this way. I'm making the decisions for the better, you know, the office. Mm -hmm. 
keeping each one of you individuals in mind as I do that. And I think as a team, we'll make all of this work. Cause I went up there, was in a kind of a bad situation and uh, in another short term move for me because I just come out on the GS 15 list and you know they hadn't slotted people or anything like that. And I guess there was a perceived problem in the Northwest when, uh, when Mr. Nedro went out there and did one of his first inspections. And apparently he got to the airport and called and, and wanted somebody at the fifth, they had a 14 level SEC then. He wanted, it up, he wanted it immediately upgraded to 15. And I actually, there was another a position, I wanna say it was in Germany for like a 15 level CISO counterintelligence guy. And I thought about that because, you know, I had done that most of my career. And then of course, Great Lakes was opening up and that's home for me. Right. Sure. And I thought at that time, my mom was getting up in age and you know, I thought I could you know, help out being closer mm-hmm. to her in Chicago. Well, Don Bruce was senior to me, you know, mm-hmm. and he ended up getting that job and be honest with you, I'm glad he got it. <laughs> but you know, but people are telling me, and I'm not going to throw out the names, but they're like, yeah. you don't want to go to the Northwest. That place is awful, and you know they got this going on and that going on. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm always up for a challenge. And then I got Fred Crow telling me I'm going to see deer outside the office every day. So, <laughs> so I went, that's fine with me, but. Yeah, but the, the weather was a downside. I mean, that's a beautiful area up there. And, yeah, but it's just gloomy, and my wife didn't like the you know the gloominess and stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. We came back down here. So it, now, did you re- where did you retire out of? Uh, did you retire well, officially? Away? It would have been a headquarters tour okay. because I went back. I was up for SES position that, mm-hmm. that uh, I didn't get selected for. But I was actually supposedly, quote unquote, the assistant to the director at the time. Okay. But they were looking at slotting me into that, what was at that time the administration, mm-hmm. uh, Frank Swarm's position. So I was pretty much shadowing him because he was he was getting ready to retire. Mm-hmm. But I think I beat him out the door. And yeah. I think Ronnie McCarthy ended up taking that slot. Right. Uh, she ended up getting, you know, an SES out of it and mm-hmm. she retired, but now it's probably what would be considered, uh, not the DDO, but the position that Mark Russ retired from. Right. Would have been that one, yeah. Yeah. So that, that would have been a, you know, I gotta tell you, everybody says, you know, I'd rather have the operational job other than the admin job, but that admin job could be very satisfying. I know Mark found to be very satisfying when he was there. So it was, uh, you know, it's, that could be a good position. And the way they, I'm glad that they went back to having two deputies, mm-hmm. one over operations, one over administration, because I believe that's a better way of managing this organization. So it was good. Yeah, at the time, um, we, you know, we only had the one and it was John McElhinney. Mm-hmm. And I remember John when I didn't get selected. And of course I was disappointed and he, he brought me in and, I had a bunch of people saying, oh, you should stick. You, you'll probably be next. Well, that was my third time, you know, mm-hmm. not being selected. And I, mm-hmm. I'm in the three strikes you're out deal, right? You know, <laughs> I don't want to hang around forever just yep. to get promoted. Plus, family-wise, plus, I would have never gotten the job I have now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which is, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it because yeah. so you retire. How do, 
Now, how did you get the job initially with CBS to do this position you're doing now? So I'm going to give most of the credit to Rick Warmack. Okay. So what happened was uh, my wife didn't want to be up in Bremerton, right? So we moved back to LA. I'm retired six months, enjoying the hell out of it, decompressing. Yep. And uh, what happened was um, 9-11. Oh. So now, you know, being what I think is a patriotic thing to do, I'm pissed first off. Mm-hmm. And I go, hey, you know, I'll go back. I actually signed up on that patriots.com to go back and work anywhere, mm-hmm. right, for government. Yeah. Yep. And uh, just so happened, they started to talk about bringing back rehired annuitants at NCIS. So I got a call from Vic McPherson. Hey, you know, we're looking at bringing back, I think it was like 25 of us at that time, to do some hiring because we got, you know, the authority to hire more people because of what happened in 9-11. And I says, well, I signed up for Patriots.com, you know, Obviously, I'm you know willing to do that, so I was selected to do it and work out of the LA LA office, which <clears throat> ended up Rick came in later to be the SEC, uh, right toward the end of my time there. And in fact, he had just come on, and we were getting ready for a a uh, headquarters inspection. Right. And I don't know how well you know Rick, but he keeps a lot of things you know yep. under wraps. Well, Rick is. Rick is the reason why I wasn't hired by Hoover Police Department in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, are you I a Hoover in, guy too? I'm a I am a Hoover guy. So I, I literally go into the police I the meeting with the chief and he, he he casually asked me, he said, Do you have any other applications in with any other organization? But I have this application with this little known agency. Nobody knows anything, but nobody, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna I may not get the job. They offered it, but I it's I'm waiting. It's with the, the Naval Investigative Service. And he goes, I just lost two officers, two of my best officers to the Naval Investigative Service. And that literally the meeting went cold at that very moment. He goes, Rick Warmack was one of them. And I go, well, I guess I ain't getting this job. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell, I have to tell Rick that when I see him there or talk to him next time. Oh, please. Yeah, he, he, laugh he, about um, that. he, he was a sack. He had replaced Ron Benefield. Mm-hmm. And Ron, Ron was a good guy. And, and uh, you know, it, it was interesting because Ron just like, you know, let, let us do as me and Tony D'Amico were the two rehired annuitants. And mm-hmm. Tony had two teenage daughters and he had lost his wife. And I said, hey, you know, Tony, if I'll do all the travel stuff, you know, if you do like screening boards and set up, you know, these other interviews that have to be done mm-hmm. and, you know, the paperwork here. And he says, yeah, that's great. And so I would do all the college visits and all of that stuff and mm-hmm. come back. And, you know, he every once in a while, I would sit on a screening board, but he was he would set all of that stuff up. Mm-hmm. And we noticed that when Rick took over for Ron, Rick wasn't around a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, how, how could the boss not be around as much <laughs> when we got an inspection coming, headquarters inspection right. coming up? And uh, somebody said, well, you know what he's going to do? He's going to blame it all on Benefield, who just left like two months ago. (laughs) I go, oh, that thing. But what what Rick was doing was he, along with Ridley, who at that time was down at Pendleton, Mm -hmm. they were actually doing 
the tech advising with you know, a host of others because headquarters had a lot of people involved in that as well. But they were helping out on the two episodes of JAG that mm-hmm. launched the NCIS uh, television show. Sure. So what happened was these guys had done such a good job that when JAG, you know, they that episode, those two episodes of JAG were the two highest rated episodes for that season for JAG. Wow. So the network says, hey, we're picking this show up, right? So when that happened, the Don Belisario and company says, hey, can we still have NCIS agents come and help us? Mm -hmm. And it was like, "Eh, I don't think we can do that because, you know, we're not paying these guys to, to, uh, you know, be tech advisors on a TV show. So Rick came into my office one day. He says, hey, I know you thinking about going back into retirement he says what do you think about uh helping out th- this tv show uh just a few days a week or whatever mm-hmm. and i says well you're not be willing to help them out a couple of days a week mm-hmm. and i says well where do they film that and he goes santa clarita and i'm like man i live like 60 miles from santa clarita but mind you i was living 60 miles from the office in upland as well so but, you know, they were good about Debbie uh, Cooper was like my immediate supervisor and she mm-hmm. lived out in San Diego and she was commuting. So she knew that it was OK for what I did. You know, I could do like come to the office once a week or whatever, because I'm on the road like two or three times, two or three days a week. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going up there every day. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you know, I'll try it. So I had this interview first took a long time for them to get me in. It was like really close to them starting to shoot. And Rick says, they haven't contacted you yet. And I said, no, they haven't. And he goes, okay. So he called the office. And the next thing I know, we're driving for a meeting with Don Belisario, the creator of the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I get in there and Rick's with me and He's got, you know, pretty big office, right? Mm-hmm. Really big, actually. And he's smoking his cigar, and the whole room is full of cigar smoke. And, and I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be torture. And he's a talker, a bloviator. So Rick and I are just sitting there listening to him tell stories and shit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Can I say that word on the podcast? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. You can, <laughs> you can you want to. So he, he goes, <laughs> uh, regulated. he goes, uh, hey, he goes, yeah, you know, I was a Marine and I find out he was an air wing. So I'm thinking he wasn't really a Marine, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we started. So the conversation moves to that, right? Our Marine Corps experiences. And then all of a sudden, after about an hour, he goes, points at me, he goes, you're the guy. Have you met uh, my number two? And I go, no, I haven't. He goes, well, let me have him come down here. And it was Charles Johnson, who was probably the most senior African-American mm-hmm. executive in, in uh, television at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he comes down and Charles is a really nice guy, graduate of Howard University, a lawyer, which okay. a lot of people at that level are lawyers. But anyway, he goes down and we talk. And next thing I know, I got a contract and off we go. Wow. That's, that is, that's amazing. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny when I was on the Kitty Hawk, but Belisario actually visited the ship. Yes. One time. Yeah. And, and they were looking for uh, story ideas, I guess. Um, and, and they, they focused on the, um, on the uh, launch system. Right. On board the ship. And I, 
and I was on the ship, but I was busy doing other things, but I had the, um, one of the aviation officers up there who worked on the catapults, show them some of the things that they were coming up with an idea. I think it was, they used it in that Jag episode mm -hmm. where the pilot, they crashed the plane. There was a female pilot that crashed the plane and they had a whole elaborate story. I don't know what it was, mm -hmm. but it was pretty interesting to see those guys come on board ship and kind of do their job. Come up. Yeah. With yeah. They went, that was before my time, but I hear the people that are, you know, that were, that went down there. They tell that story all the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so as you've done this show now, as long as you were employed with the, with NCIS, the real agency, mm -hmm. um, are, what are some of the, because I know in season eight, you actually wrote an episode, right? You remember it was season eight. You must've done some research. huh? I, I did because I said, yeah, all you have to, I Google every one of the people I interviewed just to see if there's interesting stories out there. And you, you did, you, you were the, head writer on in season eight on one episode can you talk about that that sure that, how and that happened google me the pictures of rocky carroll came up didn't they <laughs> that's exactly right because <laughs> they named rocky after you right yeah that's true his character but, but yeah i can't say that i wrote it um this is a and i'll make this as short as i can basically we try to do some real reality stuff back in the day and one of the things that Mark was always, Mark Harmon was mm -hmm. always leaning on me were, were things in the interrogation room. Mm -hmm. And he knew that I loved doing interrogations, CRIM, you know, FCI, whatever. I, that was kind of my thing, my challenge yep. in, in the organization. And so he had been pitching for me to do, and he still does, he still pitches for me to do some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he had been pitching for a while. So Gary Glassberg was our showrunner at that time. And I think he got tired of Mark telling him, get a story from Leon, right? Yeah. So Gary came to me and he says, hey, uh, you know, can you write some things about interrogations that you've done? So we, we'd like to kind of do an episode, you know, centered around that. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. So I, I probably did like 17, 18 pages of, different things you know mm -hmm. and uh he says okay i'm going to assign, assign you two writers and you guys sit down and hash out this story which ended up being out of the frying pan which is the name of my episode right and uh, it was a great experience i i was involved in every part of putting all of that together mm -hmm. except for the casting part yeah. i didn't uh, participate in that but what i would do is those guys would write, you know, like outlines and filler and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, I'd sit down with them for a couple of hours and say, no, that's not right. No, we need to change this and we need to do that. And actually that story was semi-based on a, a true story yeah. uh, where a kid is wrongly accused of killing you know, someone and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and Vance is convinced that he did it, but Gibbs is like, maybe no, he didn't, right? Sure. And um, so the whole thing. Because we all know that Gibbs has a soft heart for kids. He does. He does. And and that because his kid probably because his kid got killed on the show. Right. <laughs> yeah. Girl. Yeah. And uh, but he he's always. Really sensitive to those things, as you as you mentioned, young, younger people and, and what mm -hmm. goes on. And that's the, 
the actual actor that played that was actually not a kid. He was like over 21, but he looked like he was 15, right? <laughs> good, good kid and he, he, good guy and he acted real well during all of that. But uh, the one scene that I thought was interesting, but it was very dramatic is when, when uh, Vance goes into the interrogation room and kind of basically throws Gibbs out and he has the ax, right? And he, puts the axe through the table, you know, which we, uh -huh. faked, we faked all of that stuff. But anyway, and I thought, yeah, it wasn't an axe. It was actually a hatchet. <laughs> 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 we'll, go, we'll go with that. So anyway, yeah, it was, it was quite a great experience. And hopefully I'm going to get to do another one here pretty soon. Oh, that's cool. Um, I pitched a couple other stories. And now that uh -huh. you mentioned that, one of them, is one that your better half uh, was involved in, and that's the USS Cole. And mm -hmm. this idea came to me when we were doing a, sh a uh, episode on ship fire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, I thought, why not be able to do it? And actually, at that time, we had uh, two other showrunners, and I pitched, you know, a story similar to what happened, you know, yeah. with Harry Shantz, and and also the fact that now. Years later, you know, the person who's investigating a bombing actually lost her dad in a fire on board a Navy ship. Sure. And, and I think we have already done something slightly slimmer, similar, according to them. But I, I think I'm going to do a second run on it with mm -hmm. the emphasis of, you know, it just so happened that the first African-American agent was the one who took the family in of... Mm -hmm that particular agent that was killed on that ship. Now, that was Lou Webb. Lou Webb. Yeah. 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 He, I tell you, we have, uh, I have a lot of Lou <coughs> Webb stories, uh, you know, cause, uh, since Kathy had no father, uh, you know, Harry had died on the ship. Uh, when I asked Kathy to marry me, uh, you know, I, I said, well, I've got to get permission from you. You're, you're the only guy I know to be your dad, which is Lou Webb. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in San Diego and I get on the phone and I call Lou and, and Lou, Lou was always salty uh, when, when I, I talked to him. And, and so I'm saying, Lou, I, I just want to see if, you know, I, I want to run this by, you. I don't know if you'll, you'll, you'll agree or not, but I, I want to marry Kathy. He goes, what the hell are you asking me for? <laughs> and, I said, well, Lou, I kind of look at you like you're the only father figure she's had since, you know, Harry died. And he goes, well, I appreciate you saying that. But, you know, he goes, he goes, but Kathy's the wrong woman. And she, if she makes the decision she wants to marry, she, I, I figure you're all right with if she, if, if you if she's all right with you, I'm all right with you, too. Yeah, so, that's great. Well, I'm glad great. you got a chance to actually talk to him. I never actually had that opportunity. And I didn't know much about Lou mm -hmm. until Vic McPherson told me about him yep. and as I was retiring I actually contacted Lou mm -hmm. and he sent me a great email about his experience with NIS mm -hmm. and in fact I have it sitting over here on my desk I've kept it to this day and it's what 20 something years old now right? sure. yeah. and I don't even think I have that email address anymore no I do I have the same one but anyway he sounded like a great guy yeah and uh, he wrote quite a bit of stuff, words of wisdom and all of that, mm -hmm. and a lot about his experience as an, as an agent. So I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, he was, you know, I, I always had, 
good experiences talking to Louie, go visit him in San Antonio. And uh, he had moved back from San Antonio from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, that was his home. San Antonio is where he grew up. And um, he loved being back there. And we'd always go visit Lou and until, uh, you know, till the day he died, you know, we, um, we would try to get back there. And of course, Kathy and Marie, her, her sister went to his funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just, he was a really, I gotta tell you, he was a really good guy. And, mm-hmm. and, and then, and, you know, Kathy has, you know, obviously when you're growing up in a mixed family like that, mm-hmm. you're going to have in any family, you're going to have confrontations at times, because when you're a teenager, you know, you're going to rebel against authority right. a bit. And, you know, Kathy will tell you, said that was kind of the way it was, you know, it was kind of like right. a regular family, right? You know, he has the guy, the only male in the house that, you know, was kind of with, with Nona, mm-hmm. his wife. Mm-hmm. And then you had Kathy's uh, mom and her three sisters. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, the, the real credit to this is lose two children. One went to Yale. Um, uh, his, his son went to Yale. His daughter was a Stanford graduate. Mm-hmm. I mean, just I mean, he I, I would think that it was his kind of pushing that led to success for a lot of these girls. I mean. You had um, Kathy's sisters. Mm-hmm. One was a Naval Academy graduate. And the other one was uh, an Air Force colonel. Mm-hmm. And Kathy was a, uh, obviously an agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one was in business with UPS for a long time. And now she's with a department uh, grocery store here locally in uh, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, if anything, Lou was a tough, he's, you know, he was a ta- taskmaster. He was a luck, tough guy to be, you know, under as anybody that was an authority figure at that time. And Kathy will tell you, it was, there were some tough times, mm-hmm. but I said, the credit to Lou is all of you were successes because it was right. said, you right. need to do this and need to do that. That so, was, that was what was needed at the time. And I wish mm-hmm. there was more of that today, but you know, mm-hmm. we have what we have right now. So, well, the one thing that I always thought was cool about that time after Harry died and, and, mm-hmm when Kathy's mom brought the three girls back, I mean, he, she was escorted back from Japan by agents along Lou is one of them. Mm-hmm. And they tried to move. They moved to Texas first, I think. And then they went to Milwaukee. They went to Milwaukee and then Texas. Mm-hmm. And they would eventually move in with Lou and Nona um, in, I believe it was Phoenix. So she, you know, she grew up in Scottsdale, uh, but it was a really kind of an interesting experience. I would think, mm-hmm. you know, growing up that mm-hmm. way. Uh, all yeah. those years so it was it was but that was a kind of you, you, that was what agents did back in the day they right. that's what i was going to say they, they took that's care right. of each other like family they were exactly. all family because lou and harry were best that, friends in chicago that was one of the things that made us so unique and i don't know if that culture still exists in the agency today but but just the fact that it was so family oriented i mean mm-hmm. you know we would get together one of the first things i did when i think became the sack of the northwest was I had an event at my house mm-hmm. for everybody in the field office. And Dan, and I think damn near everybody showed up. So Lee, here's what, it was raining like crazy that day. Okay. And, and I never left the front door. Yeah. People were coming in and our house was probably one of our more favorite houses, but we couldn't be outside because it's like pouring rain, right? Sure. And, and everybody's taking off their shoes and putting them outside so they don't bring in mud and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm welcoming people in. And we did this for about two or three hours. And 
I'm standing there saying goodbye to everybody as people are coming in. I'm like, I didn't really get a chance to enjoy my own. But yeah. you know, I don't know if that happens. We had like we had over 60 people in our in a two, 2,400 square foot house. Right. Wow. And uh, everybody enjoyed all of that. And I think it got. And I don't know if they hadn't done that before. One of the other things that we we did was uh, we would have happy hours once a week which mm-hmm. you know when i first came on that kind of got we did that here in long beach but it kind of mm-hmm. got carried away with sometimes you know, like yeah, four sure. to five o'clock ended up being four to ten or eleven o'clock <laughs> so well, we had the same thing well. in san diego same yeah thing. so yep. but anyway we, we we did that and you know it's good for people to have some time to socialize doesn't have to be over alcohol because by the time i got to the northwest Mm-hmm. those ended up being more pepsi drinks and things like that when i was here it was like hard alcohol in the early 80s sure by the by the end of the 90s people were drinking diet pepsis and stuff but they still <laughs> enjoyed getting mm-hmm. together and you know learning a little bit more about each other other than what's happening in the office and out, out yeah kathy remembers a little girl you know that uh, they'd have agent parties at their house and you know the next day you'd wake up to be people sleeping on the couches and sleeping yeah. You know, uh, you know, in beds, every room would be full of agents. Yeah, but I think I, I think the the overseas experience I think fostered a lot of that as well, yeah. which made it different from a lot of other agencies that didn't have the ha- didn't have to have that kind of camaraderie. And I mm-hmm. think those agents, when they came back, just brought that type of culture back to the United States as well. So I completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. So let me ask you this: one last question about the TV show. When you first started being the technical advisor way back in 2001, 2003, could you have imagined how big and and popular that show would be today? Lee, I got to tell you, somebody brought that up to me, asked me that question yesterday. Uh And actually, it was one of our writers who's only been on the show 11 years. And he's like, oh, when I came on, I thought, you know, this show is in its 11th year maybe two or three more years. And yeah. now we're in season number 20, right? Yeah. I'll tell you this, what I told him yesterday, I said, you know, when the first show aired, I was sitting next to the guy who's our UPM, which is like a line producer. And uh, I asked him, I says, you know, how long do you think this show will last? And he says, well, Leon, we're, airing, we're premiering tonight. We'll know a little bit after tonight. Mm-hmm. And our numbers were terrible, not terrible, but in the twenties. Right. Yeah. And so I would say this, that in my own mind, I had no idea, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought could be three or four episodes, which kind of was looking like at first, or it could be a long time, but I'll tell you this. Mm-hmm. I asked Don Belisario that question, that exact same question. Mm-hmm. And this is what he said to me. And I think he was BSing at the time. But anyway, he said, Leon, this show is going to be on for a long, long time. Now, I guarantee you, he had done Jack 10 years. He -hmm. never thought that this show would do twice as many years as Jack did. So I never, you know, as I told Scott Williams, our writer yesterday, I said, Scott, here's what I'll tell you. When I retired from the organization, I intended to only work. I retired right at 50. Mm-hmm. I only re- wanted to work till I was 55, mm-hmm. 72 now. 
And I says, I'm still working. And every year I keep saying this is going to be the last year. Mm -hmm. But I enjoy the people. Mm -hmm. uh, the stories have gotten a little wacky for me, but uh, still, yeah. I, you know, I hang in there and I, I don't want the actors who portray agents to look too bad. So I help them yeah. as much as I can. Yeah. But I would have never thought that this would have gone. And I had no idea about television production at all. I, my first day was 19 hours. And I was waiting for them to actually shoot the actual episode. I thought they were just rehearsing the whole day, right? <laughs> I didn't know it was it takes eight days to do one episode, wow. right? Wow. So anyway, I, I was a novice to say the least, but I learned a lot along the way. And, and, it, and a lot uh, was the fact that Mark Harmon took me under his wing mm -hmm. because he wanted the show to be as realistic as possible. Don Belisario wanted it to be as realistic as as possible in fact one day in a meeting he said he says here's what i want he says i want it done the way they do it as long as it doesn't lose entertainment value mm -hmm. so that helped and i and i think another thing that helped which i shouldn't take shouldn't have taken any credit for mm -hmm. was one day in a meeting where you have all of these old salts and like you know it's one of these deals i don't know if you ran into this on the carrier but you sit down and get to the meeting early and you're sitting in somebody's seat, right? There's oh yeah, absolutely. Salt, right? mm -hmm. That's my seat, right? Well, that happened to me here. And I was <laughs> like, all of these old guys are sitting over here uh -huh. that do things like special effects and props and all that stuff. And then finally I'm like, okay, I'm just going to stand up and let everybody sit. And then I'll sit. Whereas the day we had a meeting and Don says to me, he goes, Hey, I got a letter from somebody that said they had never seen an actor put together a nine millimeter the way Ziva David did on an episode. Uh -huh. He goes, Leon, that was great. And I should have said, well, that wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it, it was, uh, he's passed away now and got his name just uh, Bob Bryant. Okay. Bob Bryant was our firearms instructor. And he, I said, Bob, I said, we would take the actors to the range and don't get me wrong. I would help out on all of that. But, mm -hmm. but I said, uh, I'm not a marksmanship instructor, firearms instructor. So I had Bob, we go to the range and all the actors from our show, he went at least once. Mm -hmm. All the actors from the NCIS LA show went and Bob was the one who put them through the paces, right? So when we had to do that scene where she had to strip down the weapon and put it back together again, she's supposedly cleaning it during mm -hmm. the scene. I said, Bob, come on out. And you're... so we sat in her trailer and Bob had her take this thing down to like pieces, right? Yeah. And she would practice putting it back together again. And she had it down when we actually shot it. Of course, we couldn't strip it completely down like to the little sure. nuts and bolts because it takes a long time to do that but mm -hmm. you know as far as the three the major pieces and all mm -hmm. of that she was cleaning it worked out really fine another yeah. story about that that same day when he was out doing that he walks on set and uh michael weatherly played the nozo mm -hmm. has a rubber weapon and he's twirling it around and, and bob sees it like and, the, and our replicas look real especially from a distance sure Bob goes, what are you doing? He's yelling at him from across the room. <laughs> he goes, and it just startled Michael. Uh -huh. I said, well, he goes, well, he goes, you, you don't do that with a firearm. 
He goes, well, it's rubber. He goes, I don't care. You treat every, everything that looks like a weapon, like it's real. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I don't think anybody's talked to Michael like that, but that's how you need to talk to that guy. Cause he's like, he's quick in his thing. Yeah. He, yeah. he always has a comeback, but that was, <laughs> that all happened the same day. So when Belisario said, that was great, Leon. The reason why I didn't say anything else about it, I didn't even say thank you, is because uh-huh. those other guys heard that, and they mm-hmm. knew that that guy knew that I knew what the hell I was doing, and they never liked, hey, you can sit in my seat anytime you want now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff, man. It must be a lot of fun, though, to work on the show that long and get to know these guys. Like, it's so personal and and they become good friends. So well, it is, and and I and I credit really Mark Harmon, the quarterback. I mean, that quarterback mentality has stayed with him. He and I, you know, hit it off because of football stuff, and 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 actually Rick talking, Rick and Ridley actually talking me up before I got there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that he knew he, he is a very perceptive person. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you have to be that to get as far as he's gotten in this business. But, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to throw out any names, yeah. but when we have senior visitors visit mm-hmm. a lot of times, and, and I would never say, he'll ask me like, well, what's this guy like? What? Mm-hmm. And I always say, Mark, just the same thing as I did to Mark Fox when he was taking over Panama. Mm-hmm. I said, you'll have to make that decision on your own. I says, I, you know, I'm not going to sway one way or another what I think about someone. Mm-hmm. You, you'll be able to get a feel for them because the, normally they're there for like 10, 12 hours. You'll get a, a feel for them in that time frame. And there were some who he really liked. Mm-hmm. There were some, he says, if that guy, I'd never work for that guy. And that's mm-hmm. just after working and seeing them one day. And, yeah. and I, Oh God, he's got this uncanny because pretty much, you know, I never had to say, well, really, he's not really like that. You know, yeah. most of the time he was spot on. I would say 95% of the time spot on. That's interesting. So his leadership and how he dealt with people, even like for people visiting, we can't have visitors now because of COVID regulations, but, yeah. but he never was tired of seeing NCIS agents come. Mm-hmm. And he pushed those guys. He would tell me, those guys being the other actors, he would say, Leon, does anybody ever give you grief about having to sign a picture or anything? And I go, no. He goes, that's the way I want it. He goes, the easiest thing any of us can do here is sign a freaking picture. Yeah. Right? So that was, that was kind of set the tone and everybody, not just, and people were, fascinated by our organization because they thought it was just something that was made up on our crew. They just thought, you know, they would ask me, is there really an NCIS? You know, I was like, yeah, yeah. nobody had ever heard of us, even in our yeah. crew. So I spent the first year really establishing the bona fides of the agency, right? Yeah. So, you know, and everybody that's visited, and I'm sure there's been thousands, but mm-hmm. I'm sure over a thousand. And, uh, you know, they all leave with the attitude that, hey, we were treated well because they were. And mm-hmm. people who do this business with few exceptions really want people to see how hard they work behind yeah. the scenes, right? 
because yeah. all you see are the people in front of the camera and they work hard too. I, I would never sure. want to do that job. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if I got paid as much as some of them. <laughs> but yeah. They have hard, difficult jobs and, and they do it well. And it's always good to do it in a friendly environment. And that's what we've had for 20 seasons. That's great stuff. Well, so I, I want to go back to an episode in, I think about season two or three, Denozo and, and I think it's uh, maybe it's uh, it's still the first actress who was on there got yeah. shot in the head. Sasha, yeah. Sasha Alexander. Sasha, Sasha Alexander. So they're in there, they're searching a room and a guy comes up behind him and says, who are you guys? <laughs> he goes, in NCIS, he goes, who? And he goes, and Denozo says, I don't think I'll ever, um, you know, grow uh, old of hearing that, you know, so it was something because I mean, I can remember back in the day when nobody knew who we were, you'd say I'm with NCS. I go, who? <laughs> and that was we, a great that they put that into the, into the show. We could play that for quite a while actually. And, and that was kind of, you know, kind of like we are, were as agents, uh, yeah. you know, we had to go through explaining who we were to even other law enforcement back in the day. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and they, they did play that in the show early on, but then after we got to be so big, they, that wasn't working anymore. So, <laughs> Everybody so they, knows who we are now. But in, in one of, this was in the first season, and I'll never forget it because we were doing this uh, episode. It was really a good episode, too. And the bad guy, Gibbs is chasing, chasing this guy on a train yeah. at the end, trying to capture him. And the bad guy goes, well, I told the FBI or something like that. And Gibbs goes, but we're not the FBI, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, oh, man, that was awesome. Yeah, that was good. I don't remember who wrote that episode, but I just remember that because that was the day that, that Sasha was wearing this tight dress. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, she was wearing a business suit, but it had a tight skirt to it. And because they were looking under the train, she had to get down on her knees and both her knees were scraped. And I said to her, I said, who has you wearing this out here doing this? And she goes, well, Don made the choice on what I wore. I'm like, this isn't, you know, this wouldn't, you wouldn't be this way, right? Yeah, right. So anyway, that's one of the things that I think that the tech advisor can weigh in on if we know early that, you know, something like that's going to happen. And I, and I have quite a few times, but yeah, yeah early on we played the, the thing that we didn't know. And another thing that came out of that from Yankee White, the first episode, Yep. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Bob Mueller, former director of the FBI and David McCallum are quite tight. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that. Interesting. And uh, David, after the first episode, when we kind of make the FBI look a little stupid when we steal the body from them and all of that. Uh-huh. So I said to David, I says, hey, David, what do, you, what do you think? How does Bob Mueller feel about the show? He hates it. Said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he talks about how, how much we, the FBI tries to, you know, establish relationships with other agencies because we have that you know reputation of not being user friendly with our fellow law enforcement mm-hmm. and he goes and now you guys take that stereotype and run with it on the show <laughs> and i go yeah i said you know what all of my pretty much all the fbi agents i've worked for have been 
really good people to work with. And I know that the local law enforcement never saw it that way. And I understand why, because they often do the same things to us. Like, you know, we'd work the case and get it almost solved or, or get it solved. And then mm-hmm. they come and take the credit. Right. And uh, I don't know. I don't think that happens quite that way anymore, but, yeah. but that's the way it happened when I first started. In fact, we would have to call the FBI for almost everything that didn't happen on the base and even stuff that did happen on the base. Sure. Sure. But uh, yeah, those, those days were, cause I didn't know, you know, what to expect. Now I look back at it, those hours and that intensity of work, mm-hmm. I don't think I would want to do that again, but the people, you know, I just have met so great people, you know, and have great friends and, you know, it's just been a really positive experience for both of me and my wife. Well, I think the, one of the directors said that, you know, the, the great thing about the show is, is the relationship between the, uh, the characters. Uh, and, and that is what, you know, it, when I, people ask me about the show, I just go, well, I think what you need to do is focus on the characters because the characters, the relationship between the characters is what to me is the most realistic thing on the show. Because that's the way it really is. You know, you have these, you know, these relationships. Right, right. In fact, that was uh, what came out of the success of the show. And, and one of the things that uh, Don had told me early on, in that smoke-filled room, mm-hmm. I make shows that build characters. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing smoke the whole time. <laughs> and he goes, man, I like to have a little humor in my shows. And we've succeeded even although he hasn't been on hands-on involvement for 16 seasons now yeah. that's carried on yeah. and no matter who leaves right now we're filming two relationships mm-hmm. not you know relationships like romantic but relationships mm-hmm. in terms of personality and character building and all of that we're doing sure. this a couple episodes just on that between the characters mm-hmm. so you know it's it's one of the things that I think people watch for because as I was telling one of the writers yesterday, I said, you know, even I sometimes don't know who solved the crime or even what the crime was because we start with the cold open. It doesn't seem to end up being even related to what solved at the end of the case. But Mm -hmm. I said, the people get into, you know, what they did the night before, what they're going to do today, how they go out and do a crime scene. Yeah, you know, sure. not the hands-on stuff that we did early on. When we started early on, they were rolling for fingerprints and they were doing all of that physical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, in crime scenes. We don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do a lot of talking around crime scenes, but sure. they're not in the process of doing things. Like one of our first episodes, we all went to the range, mm-hmm. we went to the LAPD range, and they shot an episode which was pretty scary but anyway, <laughs> maybe we weren't even invited to go back to that range I don't know. But, uh, but it, it shows some reality but it had some humor in it and that that's when Gibbs takes Kate's cover and puts it on a target and they shoot holes in the cover right so anyway those are some interesting things that we did in the past that yeah. eh, we probably won't do again well, it's interesting. I know that it still, uh, as long as it can create the, the ratings that it gets, it's going to continue on. And who knows, maybe we'll beat Bonanza or whatever it was. Uh, you know, our, well, this, our Gunsmoke. Year, this year, Gunsmoke will tie. 
Yeah. That will be Gunsmoke is CBS's longest running drama. Mm -hmm. uh, I doubt that we'll catch Law and Order SVU because they got 23 or 24 seasons in already. Yeah, sure. But sure. they have, and this is true with Gunsmoke as well, they were never top drama at that point in time. Yeah. yeah. And Gunsmoke, his last five or six years, the ratings were pretty low. And in mm -hmm. one or SVU, their ratings have never been like really high. So right. um, we still, we finished last season as the number one drama on TV. Mm -hmm. We just beat out the FBI, which we flipped. Well, they were, they're on our old spot on Tuesday nights at eight. Mm -hmm. And we're on Monday nights. Our numbers have really not dipped. Well, all of network television has dipped. But yeah. as far as our comparative ratings, we haven't. So we beat them in a new slot when they're in our old slot, but they are catching up. So it depends. This year, this season, they may, may pass us as number one drama on television. Well, has it? Has it been ex your experience if you're going against Monday Night Football and you know and you're and you're going directly against them? Do they look at that those numbers? Hey, we know there are going to be a lot of people watching football at the same time. You know? Yes, but you know what? I think it's because Monday Night Football is now on ESPN. It hasn't mm -hmm. hurt us that much. Oh, interesting. ESPN is considered a cable station, mm -hmm. so it hasn't hurt us that much. Numbers, it depends on the game that's going to be on. And the other part of that is normally when we air on the West Coast, that game is over. It does hurt us in the East Coast, you know, when the air is in the East Coast, but uh, not so much. It's, it's interesting. We, we thought that was going to be a major factor. I, I personally thought it was going to be a big factor, but it really turned out that it hasn't been. Wow. Interesting. Well, I won't get you in trouble with CBS to find ask you the question if Denozo and Gibbs are coming back to the show at some point in the near future. So I won't ask that question. Okay, maybe, and I won't maybe you could it. maybe you I could tell me it. offline. <laughs> I won't answer it, but I'll throw this out there. I I, I heard uh, one of our actors say they spent two hours talking to Michael Weatherly the other the last uh -huh. week. So uh -huh. I don't think they were just talking about you know fishing because you know, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, well, we're, I think he was one of the best characters on the show, and and uh, Michael, let's come back. Michael was a great guy. He's so funny, yeah, um, and he's so quick witted, right? <laughs> but one of the things he told me once early on, when I was trying to give him some advice on playing an agent, uh -huh. he goes, "Neon." He goes, "I'm not an agent." He goes. I'm just an actor that plays an agent. <laughs> so I said, oh, my okay. I said, yeah, we have some goofy agents too. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, somebody goes, hey, in your opinion, who's the, who's the most, uh, you know, real estate agent? I said, Denoza, because eh? I mean, I've, I've met many a goofy agent like that, you know, that could uh, quote movies and, you know, and always refer back oh, to movies. Yeah, yeah he's, Michael's, a, he's a character. You know, they, um, he was supposed to have done the Baltimore homicide cop, right? Exactly. He became with NCIS. Mm -hmm. So when Tom Fisher came out, I introduced the two of them. And, and uh, when Tom passed away, I sent a text to, uh, to Michael telling him that. He's like, oh, mm -hmm. that's, too, that's really sad. You know? mm -hmm. But uh, Michael, is, Michael is in his own, own world. He, he, 
he's quick i tell yeah. you yeah. but yeah we we kind of missed all of them i still stay in touch with probably Fred here and there and yeah and, uh you know they all were really good people to work with i i can't say that any actor that's been you know main character on our show they've all been they cbs has done a great job picking those characters yeah they all want to work and they all listen and they all respect. The biggest thing is they respect the agency. Yeah. You know, and that goes across whatever political lines there are out there. They respect NCIS. That's great. That's great to hear it. And I know that, you know, I never got a chance to come to your set, but I did go to NIS LA before I retired mm-hmm. and uh, got to meet uh, LL Cool J mm-hmm. and the other guy. And I got to tell you, man, Chris McDonald. Yeah, Chris McDonald. Chris, they Chris were O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell. Super, super nice guys. In fact, when I, I, I remember I introduced myself and hey, hello, cool J. I'm Lee Clements. How you doing? And he goes, he goes, please call me. I I can't, I think it was like his like real name is like Donnie or something. It's like it's Todd. <laughs> Todd, that's right. He goes, yeah. please call, please call me Todd. <laughs> okay, man. That dude was big. I mean, he is he is cut. I mean, this is the submarine episode that uh I got to watch uh, yeah, one where they yeah. he and Chris O'Donnell's character are going in the submarine, sure. and yeah, I, uh, I actually did see that one. Actually, uh, yeah, it was super super nice people, and everybody on the set was just so welcoming here at Paramount, and uh, it was a great experience for me as I was retiring. You know, I got surprised by my ASAC saying, "Hey, we're going to go up to the uh, set today," and um, I said, "Oh, that is cool, man! I can't wait to see this." I, 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 it was exciting to see what goes on in a Hollywood studio. Yeah, and it's good that you got to go up to Paramount because they spend more time on location. And uh, when they film down here where I live, I, I go over, Al Burke let me know, and I'll go down. And actually, I was, they were here, it's been a couple of months ago. Well, actually, it was, it was before a hiatus. And uh, I hadn't seen Todd or any of those guys in, in a while. In fact, the last time I'd seen them was when they were filming here in town. And uh, I went over to him and he's sitting down and I'm, he gets up and walks over. I go, you don't have to get up and come over. Oh, no, no. You're the man. You're the OG. (laughs) (laughs) He's a good guy. So he's he's great. And and I'll tell you, when he first started, when we were taking him to the range, the first thing we did was gave him like a little background on NCIS and kind of tell him about you know, the agency, mm-hmm. I can't remember who came, I think it was at that time, the sack of uh, San Diego came up. But anyway, we're sitting there and I just flat out asked him, I said, well, how do you want to be, you know, how do you want us to call, what do you want us to call you? Yeah. And his manager was there at the time and you know, all the other actors. And uh, he thought about it, which was kind of interesting, mm-hmm. was Todd. Call me Todd. Yeah. Call me Todd. So we're we're in the van going to the range, and one of the other actors who didn't stick with the show, she goes, "Hey Todd, why don't you sing for us while we're going while we're on the ride?" <laughs> and he goes, "Hey, I'm not a singer. I'm a rapper." <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's a great guy, though. He, you know, and my sister. One of my sisters, she didn't get to meet him. My, my older si- sister, just under me, got to meet him. And, 
and my niece and he they took pictures with him they were on location that day of east l.a and uh, just a great guy he uh, when osama shofani who's a retired marine master gunnery sergeant that mm -hmm. uh, shane brennan who was the creator mm -hmm. of that show when they took him down they actually took them down to camp pendleton mm -hmm. and he saw them you know going through marine drills and you know osama was in charge of it but he hired him as the technical advisor before al got the job mm -hmm. and osama is a good guy I, I know him and uh you know but he doesn't know jack about ncis mm -hmm. and he knew that he says i don't know why they want me because i don't know anything about what you guys do and I think it was because Shane just liked the fact that his name was Osama, to be honest with you. <laughs> Interesting. But, uh, he was the, 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 the character that he plays is supposed to be a character after him, supposed to be mm -hmm. Muslim, although Osama is not. He's a Christian Arab, Palestinian, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I just think back about all of that and what was supposed to have happened that didn't happen. With all of those characters, they changed the the whole. And I don't know if this because they thought the show wasn't doing well because they always done you know pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, when Osama was retiring from the Marine Corps, had his retirement party. Mm -hmm. Todd and his wife showed up. Actually, I don't think Todd was the only. I think, I think several of the cast members came to it. Anyway. Wow. But I got to, I just went over because I thought this gal may have been Todd's assistant, you know, mm -hmm. short lady. And thank goodness I didn't embarrass myself. But I went over and introduced myself. And she says, told me her name. And she goes, I'm Todd's wife. Mm -hmm. And she was so unassuming. And I was like, wow. She, and he's huge, right? She's sure. tiny. She's <laughs> tiny. And uh, I was like, wow. But yeah, that, but you don't want to, you don't want to mess with that guy because no. you know, well, he actually he got somebody broke into his house and he held he him beat the living daylight <laughs> out of that guy. I'm gonna mess into his house and he caught him in the kitchen and he beat the living daylight out of the guy. <laughs> and they didn't no charges were brought up against him either. So. Like police got there and go, we'll take care from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he oh won't be breaking into any more actors' houses, probably. What well, it's interesting because one of the new actors that's on the show is a kid named Castile. I would, uh, his dad was my teammate at Alabama. Oh, really? Um, played football together. And, and, um, when I saw, and he was a really good football player when he played down here, but he decided to be an actor and he was in a movie, uh, called Woodlawn, which was, a in Birmingham, there was a, there was a game that was played in the seventies between banks, high school and Woodlawn high school. And he played the character, Tony Nathan. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and Tony Nathan played for the Miami Dolphins and, mm -hmm. and was a oh, great, yeah. and he played at Alabama. He was a teammate of my brother when he was at Alabama, T, uh, Tony Nathan was. And uh, so I remember watching Tony Nathan play in high school, and it was a big game because um, Banks was still primarily a white, all-white team, and Woodlawn was diversified. They were kind of half black and white. And they, you know, it was kind of like it was this, this game, I think it, it, at the time it drew more fans uh, than any game had ever. I mean, they filled up Legion Field uh, where Alabama and Auburn usually used to play. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, but I remember he played such a good role in that. It was good to see him at, get a job with NCIS LA yeah. um, as one of the new characters there. 
That's great. Yeah, we we get that. Um, you know, every once in a while I'll get, hey, can you get you know an audition for someone? And and I have, uh, but it's tough when you don't know what their you know capabilities are. Sure, but it will go out of their way to you know take a look and help people. I, I had a guy who actually was in my Rotary Club here, who's now really big on he does uh, voiceovers for books and okay. you know, the, the voice books you and uh, <clears throat> I had him read for a part and he didn't do very well for one part so they had him read for another one and he didn't do well there and I guess mm-hmm. he gave up on that and and started doing voiceovers and he's done awesome with voiceover mm-hmm. and Tommy Goodman's uh, daughter um uh, she was here. Rick was helping her. Actually, she worked at Warner Brothers, but she came to our show uh, and visited a couple of times. But I guess she lost the bug and went back to, to home and she's working with him on the farm or something. Oh, sure. Yeah. Barry Kochi just saw him recently. And I guess that's what happened. She went back to work down there on the farm. But yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's always good. Here's another funny story. And I know we're you're going to have to do a, in fact, my thing is telling me to stand, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, funny story, uh, how, how small this makes the world. So we had a, a kid come on who was playing a Marine master sergeant. And I think he was, he looked a lot younger than most master sergeants look. He may have been the same age wise, but anyway, there was one where we we're doing an EOD episode where we had a female EOD technician and I always ask the guest actors, you know, introduce myself, especially if I have to work with them, because <clears throat> I had a bad experience first episode. The guy was playing special uh, Secret Service agent mm-hmm. who had a goatee. This is at the time when we didn't have a lot of facial hair, maybe a mustache. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, had a goatee. And, and Don, first take of the first day of shooting, looks, and we had these little black and white monitors. He looks, he goes, what is that on his face? Somebody <laughs> goes, that's, that's a goatee. Secret service agents don't wear goatees. And he turns to me, don't do they? Said, no, sir, not on the presidential detail, right? Yeah. This is yeah. 2003. He's got to go. Well, we knew he had it. He's, got, he's in another production or something. He's got to have it. Don mm-hmm. goes, either that goes or he goes. <laughs> <laughs> well that's good realism though so, right i mean because that's the way so it was. he went and we had to hold up for like 25 minutes for him to shave it off well now i guess i'm the bad guy right mm-hmm. so he's walking and this is when we had the, the actor that used to uh emulate george w bush right okay that yeah. the, the actor looked nothing like that but he puts on the you know prosthetic and he looks exactly like him on film mm-hmm. But he passed away now. But but anyway, they're on Air Force One, and this guy who's the head Secret Service agent is walking around talking with the president. And he's got his arm on his shoulder, right on the mm-hmm. president's shoulder. Mm-hmm. I said, "Dude, you can't do that." So I I went in, and he said, uh, "Well, who are you?" And I says, "Well, I'm the technical advisor." And I says, "You know, that's just unprofessional for you to." you know, do that to the president as a protectee. I don't care how well you know him. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing this on, on film and you're supposed to be, you know, protecting him like all the other guys. 
mm-hmm. you wouldn't be putting your arm around him, you know, like you're his best <laughs> buddy, right? Yeah, sure. So anyway, I learned from that to introduce myself to the guest actors so they know when I give them a note that, you know, I know kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've been a couple of times. But anyway, you had this guy who's this in charge of this EOD outfit. And I asked him, I said, well, where, where are you from? And he goes, well, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I go, really? I go, well, you know, my grandparents are buried in a little village called Decatur, Michigan, not too far from Kalamazoo. In fact, my grandmother died in the hospital in Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. He turned to me and he says, well, you know what? I'm really from that town, Decatur. He says, but nobody, everybody thinks it's Illinois. So I always say Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. I go, really? He goes, I says, well, what's your name? He told me and everything. And, and he asked me and I said, well, my grandparents were, you know, Pete and Elizabeth Givens. And he goes, oh, he was a young guy. He says, I don't, I don't remember that name. He says, but my uh, dad was a preacher of the church there. Let me get him on the line. So he calls and he goes, hey, dad, do you know Pete Gibbons? And I could hear his dad, Drew, he's talking loud. Pete Gibbons, he was a deacon in the church. <laughs> he says, what do you know? What do you know about Pete Gibbons? He goes, well, I'm sitting, standing here talking to his grandson. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I go, oh, I hope that's not the preacher that my grandfather was always complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> he preached too long <laughs> yeah so that shows you how small of a world it is and uh, just getting to know you know a lot of different people that are not only in the business but you know you get to see actors and people who are quote-unquote famous mm-hmm. as real people yeah and you know some have quirks and some are you know paranoid about this or that but mm-hmm. generally speaking they are just like you and i everyday yeah. people except for most of them have a lot more money than we do. Right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Jeez. Well, Leon, it has been a great talking to you, man. I, I tell you, we're, we're, we've passed two hours now and I usually try wow. to, I, but that's okay because that's I'm happy to have that. This is, this is your show. We can, I could talk to you all day long yeah, and no, no. I, I could make three shows, but. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, you, you can edit this uh, however <laughs> you want. You don't even have to run it by me. You want to play it back as a pie or put it, Attach it to your podcast. I'll uh, give me that. Give me the information again. I'll write that down. Yeah, sure. So uh, go on uh, Spotify. Right. And that's where I, uh, that's where primarily, you can also do Apple. Apple carries it as well. It's NCIS reports from the field. Just do a search and it comes right up. Okay. Yeah, because I'd like to hear what some of the other guys have had to say. And if I, if I hear any, falsehoods i'll let you know i'm sure, I'm <laughs> sure there'll be some that will come up online as well i appreciate that and you know right. and you need to tell those guys at cbs they need to make a tv show about doug hubbard that guy's that guy's uh, that guy's an amazing guy yeah he is and uh what he went through was unbelievable was something. and you know it's been a long time since we talked about the vietnam era mm-hmm. you know vets and the folks that uh, actually did that and we did a show where we went back maybe this is maybe three years ago now three or four but we went back did a flashback to uh to uh, vietnam and in fact it was one that uh, fred dreyer was oh wow fred dreyer the football, football player. player yeah and uh hunter we wanted to do a flashback of him when he was in vietnam now he's a re- 
He was a retired Marine Master Sergeant, but he had been a radio operator over there. And there was something that happened that kind of was covered up, right? So we took one of our stages and turned it into a jungle. And I'm walking down on down near the beach. I live, I can see the water from here. And I'm walking one day and I run into one of my former brothers in Third Anglico, who was the admin chief, but in Vietnam, he was a radio, well, he was a grunt, but grunts had to carry radios and that's what he, he did. And I go, hey, Dickie, we're, we're having, we're doing this episode that's right up your alley. It's about a guy who was a radio operator in Vietnam. I says, would you want to come up and tech advise on it? He goes, mm-hmm. yeah. So he and I pick him up and the day we're shooting that episode, <clears throat> we get up there and they had already started some of it. And uh, so we're watching and he turns to me and we have the VC coming through the jungle. Uh-huh. He says, hey, why do the VC guys have flashlights? <laughs> said, oh said, my goodness. That's I, good. I think this has to do with lighting. I think our director of photography is doing that for lighting, but you have a good point. This is like nighttime, right? There's no, yeah. Anyway, so I introduced him to some of the guys that are playing the Marines and the radio operators. And they were like, oh, we're happy to meet you. And you know, we have so many questions and, and they had all their gear on. Mm-hmm. He's like, are you guys going on a patrol and all that crap? And he starts taking on, no, you don't need this, you know. It's all like that, that scene in Platoon where he goes, you don't yeah, need this, right. you don't need that. Exactly. Yeah. He goes, no, we, you don't need to carry that. You know, how long are you going to be on patrol? No, you don't need that either. You know? So <laughs> it was pretty funny. So he, uh, he's, in fact, I just saw him at another, yeah. our first sergeant passed away last well, he died oh, wow. two weeks ago, but the funeral was last week, and and uh, he was there, and I was like, yeah, Fat first sergeant lived a good life. He made it to almost 85 before he had wow. Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. He was a jumper, okay, and because uh, our unit, you know, was a jump unit, and, and uh, he he was, he was out there all the time, and he was a heavy. He really got heavy after he retired, mm-hmm. but he was probably not within the weight standards, you know. As a first sergeant, I'm like, every time he hit the ground, he's probably jarring something loose out there. <laughs> he was a good guy. Anyway, I will let you go. Leon, man, I really appreciate it, man. It's been great. I enjoyed this so much. Yeah. And it's been good talking to you for sure. Yeah, my pleasure. And tell Kathy and stuff. I will do that, man. Take care right. of yourself. Take care. Enjoy your weekend. All right, you too, man. Well, now I think you really know what it's like to be an advisor to a very, very popular TV show. Leon really gave us um, a great snapshot of what that's like. And I want to thank him for coming on the show today. It was really a great experience talking to Leon. I've known Leon's name from the past as he started off in the legendary 11LB, that's Long Beach. Um, And so many fine leaders have come from that office and I hope to talk to a few of them here in the very near future. I want to thank Leon for coming on the show today and I want to thank you for listening and I, uh, I really appreciate that. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podcast, and Google. Really everywhere you can go to listen to podcasts, we're available now. Um, so I want to thank you for, for listening to the show and, um, and as always, 
when you get a chance, if you get a chance, go to the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, and give me the five-star rating that helps the show continue. So, listen, I want to thank you again. Uh, Thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll see you soon. Talk to you soon. Got a great show, um, list of shows coming up in October that I'm excited about uh, regarding the USS Cole. Uh, Don't miss that uh, because it's going to be some uh, great shows from um, Commander Lippold, who is the commanding officer of the USS Cole, to uh, the agents who worked the crime scenes, and finally to the agent who worked the counterterrorism investigation um, that I'm excited to have all those guys on in October. So uh, they're going to talk about their careers and talk about the uh, Cole incident and um, what it was like to work a crime scene that big uh, in a foreign country in horrendous conditions. So I want you to keep listening. We've got a lot to we've got a lot to carry through about the history of NCIS, and I think that uh, it's it's going great. So anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Until next time, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening to the NCIS Reports from the Field podcast. Really enjoyed bringing this show to you. If you like what you heard today, please go to your favorite podcast service. Do me a favor. Like, subscribe, and give me the five-star rating. Give me the five-star rating helps me keep the show going, and I want to keep this show moving along. I want the the History Project to do what I intended to do, to tell the history of the organization one career at a time. So if you can do that, that'd be great. I appreciate you listening. Listen, if you want to continue the conversation, and I'd love to do that, send me an email at ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week with another interesting guest who will tell their story. Until then, stay safe, everybody.